Hi, and welcome to In Search of Insight, Nootropics Depot's monthly podcast. I'm your host, Erica, and sitting next to me is our product specialist, Emil. Hey, everyone. We are back with episode 23 of the In Search of Insight podcast. It's almost been two years. Yeah, it's pretty crazy to think about that. Absolutely. And it's nice to see you again on video. We really appreciate all your great feedback from our last couple of videos. And we wanted to ask if you aren't subscribed already, but you like these podcasts and you like learning about nootropics and supplements to subscribe to our YouTube channel, to give us a thumbs up down below. And also, if you want to get to the info, the nitty gritty lion's mane mycelium conversation right away, you can skip to where we have very detailed chapters in the description box. So if you want to get right to the chase and learn about lion's mane mycelium, go to the description, click on the chapter that you're looking for. You'll find lots of information and links there. But before we get into our main topic for today, which is lion's mane mycelium, we are going to start with our usual opening segment, which is new products that have been released since our last podcast episode. But actually, before we do that, let's do our traditional way of starting these podcasts, which is to actually take some of the product we're going to be talking about. So, Erica, do you want to bring over the lion's mane mycelium arenosine A powder and scale, please? Yes, absolutely. So, here we have... Dun, 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 a lovely, well-labeled lion's mane mycelium powder. It says 0.5% arenosine A on here. Mm -hmm. This was one of the initial beta testing samples. It's the exact same thing that's going into the product, but we were really focusing on getting the most amazing looking label and we were doing a lot of graphic design. So we don't have the nice little bottle here, but we still want to take it because that's what we always do. Yes. So we're using this, it's the exact same material. And this is what I've been testing. Eric has actually never taken it. So for me, yes. I know what to expect and I'll be right up front. For me, acutely, not a whole lot happens. So don't expect something very exciting to happen to me. There have been a few people on our team though who do get fairly uh, pronounced acute effects. Erica might be one of those people. We're going to find out. So I'll keep checking in with you. Yes, let's see what happens. So what we always do when we take powders is we weigh them, we measure them. Mm -hmm. So we have our Nootropics Depot scale here. Mm -hmm. And Emil, how much powder are you going to weigh out for us to take? 500 milligrams. And 500 milligrams is the actual dosage of the tablets too. We went a little bit higher. Initially when we were testing it out, we were doing 250 milligrams. And some people definitely noticed significant effects. Other people didn't. And in some of the research, they're looking at much higher dosages. One thing to consider too with this lion's mane arenosine A mycelium powder is that it's just a powder. So it's not an extract, it's just a very highly standardized arenosine A product. And we'll get into that a little bit more. Maybe at some point we can flash a table with some of the test results that we've seen with some of our competitors. But just to kind of preface this, 0.5% may seem low, but it is not low when you consider that one of the highest values we found, I believe, was like 0.08%. And most of the other arenosine A-containing products out there, no one's actually standardizing. We'll get into later with J, why that's the case. Um, but 
basically a lot of the products that are mycelium on grain i think this has been an ongoing question those products just don't have a whole lot of um arenosine a we we've seen values as low as i believe 0.0003 percent uh that's like about the same that you get paid for a song on spotify right exactly for (laughs) the musicians out there it's it's not a lot of arenosine it's not a lot of cash Yeah. Speaking of audio, by the way, you might notice a, a new little friend here in the frame. We were going to wear our lavalier mics, but... One of our components died, and yeah. we couldn't figure out a way to fix it, so we brought back our old and trusty microphone that you might recognize the sound a little bit from our earlier audio-only podcasts um, today. So that's why you see this microphone in the shot, and that's why the audio sounds a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But of course, the show must go on, and I'm getting excited to take this arenosine A. So, Emil, let's measure out a dose. And I'm also curious what this will taste like because I've never taken it before. So, this will be a brand new experience for me from start to finish on the podcast. And I hope that there will be some effects. Um, although that's maybe not the best mindset to have for a bioassaying situation, but let's see what happens throughout the conversation. And you really have no idea what to expect either, I think. Like you might have a, a, a small notion of what it should do, but I think Erica is the perfect test subject here because you're going in with, without really any expectations. Yes. All right, so you're getting a little bit of a bonus, 515 milligrams. Okay, great. So I'm just going to take this plate. Yeah, just dump it underneath your tongue. Underneath my tongue. Okay, sounds good. And while Erica is taking this, one of the reasons we didn't wait around and get some new lavalier mics, by the way, lavalier mics always seem to break. We've had like three lavalier mics break on us within our whole video production crew uh, in Phoenix and here. I don't really know why. So if you have any lavalier mics that you've ever worked with that don't break, let us know. We'd love to see them. But the show has to go on because we have Jay actually jumping on in probably half an hour or so. We actually have a call scheduled with him. So this podcast will flow straight into a call with Jay in the lab and we'll talk the nitty gritty science about our Alliance main project there. Mm-hmm. How does it taste? Oh, you gotta, you gotta, mm. yeah, you mm. gotta drink some water. Don't, mm. we're not sublingualing this. The, this is not a good one to sublingual. Okay. So you got a little bit over you. This is a great example of just how clueless I am with this product. So you really know it's real. I've never taken it before. Okay. So Hmm. one of the reasons why I said, yeah, it's quite nice actually. And one of the reasons why I suggested putting it underneath your tongue. And this is how I always take powders. If I just put a powder straight on my tongue, I will inhale a little bit of it and I'll turn into a bit of the cinnamon challenge if you guys remember that from back in the the meme days of the internet. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not very nice, but I found that if I place powders right underneath my tongue and then I kind of put my tongue on top of it, it gets moist enough where then it doesn't tend to fluff up uh, and potentially allow me to to breathe some in, which is not good. I, I blew some of the powder out of my mouth you saw that um, happening, when I was trying to talk to you, but I didn't inhale any, which was good. Um, yes. And now that I did taste it, it's pleasant. It tastes like a mushroom. It's really not um, so distinct in flavor. It's maybe slightly sweet and slightly earthy, um, but 
generally speaking, it's a pleasant taste. It kind of reminds me of the the mushroom seasoning from Trader Joe's a little bit, if anyone's familiar. <laughs> yeah, it with has that. a nice umami flavor. Mm -hmm. There's almost like a little bit of chocolatiness, I think. Yeah. Let's see, what does it smell like, actually? I mean, it smells, it smells mushroomy, of course. Yeah, I definitely but, smell a little bit of the chocolate. But it is really like, not like a chocolate bar, but like a, a baker's cacao or mm -hmm. something. Like yes. it has that kind of dry, chalky, powdery. cacao, powdery. Mm -hmm note to it. So Erica showed you how, you know, you would start doing some sublingual testing. Yeah, um, although that's not the recommended way to take the lion's mane mycelium powder. You could potentially do it. The one issue, and we talk about this often with sublingual, is with sublingual there's a certain amount of material that your sublingual membrane can absorb. So if you're putting 500 milligrams of powder there, there's so to preface this, there's, again, as we said, there's half a percent of arenosine A in there. So out of that 500 milligrams, you're not getting a whole lot of milligrams of arenosine A. So potentially, if it can actually come out of the powder readily in your saliva, in your mouth, then it would be a pretty good candidate for sublingual dosing. But because it is so much powder, and you can see it's just sucking all of the moisture out of your mouth, mm -hmm. this is not really an ideal powder to be using sublingually. Yeah. And it seems like some of the digestive enzymes and acids are needed to actually break down some of the cell walls, even though technically that doesn't seem possible, one of the cell walls being chitin, but there's some other stuff in the mycelium too. It seems that you definitely need a little bit of your stomach acid, a little bit of heat to kind of liberate those components. So I wouldn't necessarily suggest using this as a sublingual, and I think there will definitely be some talk about it on Reddit. And I would really like to actually see what happens when people try sublingualing it, because that is bound to happen. Some people yeah. somehow can sublingual 500 milligrams of material. I don't really understand it. But anyways, if you've ever wondered how to take a powder easily without having to dissolve it in a drink, because this will not dissolve very readily in water, and we'll talk a little bit later why that is, um, but it can be a little bit hard to then put it in water and to drink it because it's just going to float on the top. It's going to be a little bit messy. It gets stuck to your glass, which is not ideal. Yeah. So then you just take the powder on here, you dump it underneath your tongue, and you just swish it away. You call it the toss and wash. And this is the toss and wash that's a little bit more, mm, I guess, safe for not having powder flying around everywhere. Put it underneath your tongue. I would have appreciated a little bit of that uh, tutorial myself earlier, but I'm glad that I went for the sublingual method first, because now you know, it opened up a new conversation. Um, next time I take this, I will definitely go for the toss and wash. And maybe as you saw, I put the powder underneath my tongue and I put my tongue over the powder, mm -hmm. and it kind of keeps it in place. And then when I start drinking water, I flip my tongue back a little bit and I let the water hit the powder mm -hmm. and then I swirl it around my mouth. Make sure all of the components of the powder have gotten completely saturated with yeah. water and becomes kind of a paste and then you swallow it. Of course, this works great for something like the arenosine A mycelium because it tastes good. Yes. If you have a powder that's very bitter, it's not the greatest thing. No. Um, but this is a good way if you have some neutral tasting powders and you need a convenient way to take it, this is a good way. 
Another way would be to maybe drop it in a smoothie or some yogurt, something that's not water. But yeah, absolutely. We are currently not releasing the powder, so you don't have to worry about that with the uh, arenosine A mycelium because it's just going to be tablets. And awesome. I think with that, we can get back to where you started, which is? Yes, new product releases since our last podcast episode has launched. So since our last podcast episode, we have launched two new products. One of them is the, Ly- the Lycelium Mayan's Mane. No, <laughs> one of them is the Lion's Mane Mycelium Tablets. And the other is another exciting and really interesting product, which is isoliquidogenin tablets. And we're going to be talking about that first. And isoliquidogenin tablets are going to be a controlled dissolve tablet. Whoop. <laughs> so these ones actually say something else in them. When we were first formulating these, they were going to be quick dissolve. So you put them in your mouth and they quickly dissolve. We realized that for some reason, the isoliquidogenin, when you press it into a tablet, the friability is a little bit different than other powders. What is friability? Friability is a technical term we use to determine how breakable a tablet is. And the more breakable a tablet is, the easier it will be to dissolve. Um, Think about it maybe like if you have a Jolly Rancher or a similar hard candy. When you put that in your mouth, it's going to take a really long time for it to dissolve. Okay. If you have, what's a candy that's not hard like that, that you put in your mouth and it kind of just dissolves. We have something in the Milk Netherlands. Milk duds or so? Milk duds. We have something in the Netherlands called schuimblokken, which is like a, uh, it, it almost is like the astronaut ice cream or marshmallows. It, it, you've tried it one time, right? It's the like a- Astronaut ice cream of marshmallows. Yeah, have you ever had the astronaut ice cream where it's like kind of crunchy and then it dissolves really quickly? No, I don't think so. Okay, so you have this like- I've had astro- dip dots, but that was something completely <laughs> different and wonderful. Astronaut ice cream is this stuff where you take ice cream and you freeze dry it and hmm. then it's, it's hard ice cream, basically, okay. um, that will not melt. And I think the story is that astronauts eat this stuff in space. I'm not oh. sure if that's actually the case, but basically you get all of the flavors of ice cream, but you've taken most of the moisture out of it, so it's really light. So you okay. basically can have very light ice cream, kind of get the same flavors. There's this thing here called Schreinblock, which is kind of like a marshmallow, but it is a hard marshmallow. And when you put it in your mouth, it just completely dissolves right away. So in terms of friability, (laughs) in terms of friability, that's kind of what we're going for. Usually we want something that's dissolving quickly, but it also means that they are more breakable. Um, So with the examples with the Jolly Ranchers, the the less friable something becomes, the, the less easy it is to break, the longer it takes to dissolve. Yes. And I actually think that is really good for sublingual administration of things. So it's actually something I've personally tried to push, but for just general usability, it is actually easier to have a tablet that's dissolving better because then you don't have to sit around with it as much. We've discussed this from time to time, um, why it's important to have a sublingual dose in your mouth or near that sublingual membrane for longer. and. It's surprising to know that sublingual dosing takes a lot longer than most people think. Mm-hmm. How long on average do you recommend for a, a tablet that we might take 
What's another quick dissolve tablet that you can think of? Not this, something that actually is dissolving. Pregnenolone. Fast. Uh, okay, pregnenolone. Tetrahydromagnol, although that one also, we had to formulate it in a way where it's a little bit harder, it's a little bit more compressed, uh, and it doesn't dissolve as quickly. I would say the pregnenolone ones dissolve pretty quick. If you just let it sit, maybe it takes 20 minutes for it to fully dissolve. Okay. These ones I was testing out, and it really takes a long time. Like you can just kind of park it somewhere in your mouth, underneath your lip, or your top lip, underneath your um, uh, tongue. And you can kind of move it around at different parts too. And it could take like an hour for this to fully dissolve. And the longer that it's in your mouth, the more effective that sublingual effect is going to be, right? Correct. Okay. Because some of it is the absorbing through your sublingual membrane, okay. and you're also slowly swallowing some of it. Because the way you do this is you just kind of let it sit there, and you're swallowing your spit. So it's really easy to go about your day. You can actually talk to someone if it's parked underneath your lip. It might look a little bit weird if. If it's sticking out a little bit, but who cares? It's quite a small tablet, yeah. so it shouldn't look particularly weird, but so it is very, very bright. So yeah. if you do have it in your mouth for an extended period of time, you will probably notice that your tongue might turn yellow. That's what it looks like. So, yeah. So It's quite yellow in color. Yeah, quite yellow. Um, so. But it tastes really nice. Mm -hmm. So let's go ahead and Take some isoliquidogen. Well, you shouldn't because you're trying the lion's mane. Okay, so fine. <laughs> I want to see a pure response. Yes, yes, we will pure. I will do the pure bioassaying experience for the lion's mane mycelium, but Emil is going to take the isoliquidogen. Because I don't notice a whole lot from. I notice a little bit. I notice a slight focusing effect from it, but I've also been taking the tiger milk mushroom, so that kind of is overriding some of those effects too. I get a slight focus, a little bit of a mood boosting effect, but it's not very significant for me acutely. In the long run, it's more significant. So we can talk about that later too. But I'll pop one of these in and you can kind of talk and just park it. Now it's right here, kind of parked there. Yeah. But basically the reason why these went from quick dissolve to controlled dissolve is because they just take longer to dissolve and there was no way around that. We actually formulated a large batch of these in our normal quick dissolve formulation. And when we put them in the bottles and we were kind of handling them and then we opened up a bottle, all of them were kind of turning to powder. Mm. That's obviously not acceptable. So we did a bunch of new reformulations. We actually wanted to release this one quite a bit earlier, but because we had to do a lot of reformulations to make it just perfect, like we want them to actually dissolve a mm -hmm. little bit so we, we could make them really hard and then they just wouldn't dissolve. It would also take a long time to dissolve in your stomach. So we do actually a lot of formulation and I think we're going obviously a little bit off topic here because we'll talk about what isoliquidogenin does in a sec, but I think this is interesting to talk about because we talk a lot about the science that we do and a lot of that science is we test what's in there. So here we're testing for isoliquidogenin. In our new lion's mane mycelium, we are testing for arenosine A. And we'll talk about that with J and why that's very significant. But what we don't oftentimes talk about is 
what we're actually looking at when we're formulating the product, when we're making capsules, when we are doing enteric coatings, when we are doing stuff like this. We actually have a piece of equipment where we can put in simulated gastric fluid. So basically the, the fluid that's in your stomach, we have a machine that is filled with that fluid and similar enzymes. And then there's a little platform that moves up and down like this. And we put tablets in there. And then you just see it go up and down. We call it a dissolution test. And then we can see how quickly does a tablet or a capsule dissolve. And we do this for every batch. We, we put some in when we're formulating because we don't want it to just sit there and basically have you poop them out. That's not good. Um, we've seen that with our enteric coated NMN, for example. It works basically perfectly for everyone. And we have done this in our dissolution test too. Whenever we get enteric coated NMN in, we put it in the dissolution test because we want it to survive in the stomach acid for four hours. But then once we transfer it over to simulated intestinal fluid, we want those enteric coated tablets to start dissolving very quickly. So that way it can make its passage through the stomach completely protected but then once it hits the intestines it starts dissolving as quickly as possible so we get it dialed in there and of course there are still some examples where people are passing these nmn tablets in their stool completely um, intact still and that's because not everyone's gastrointestinal system is similar but at least we're doing some of this work i, I can't really think of many other supplement companies that are probably doing this level of work and one of the reasons we do that too is we take these products ourselves and we want them to actually have a good disintegration rate so that when we're taking them we can notice the effects quickly but also maybe not that quickly maybe sometimes we want to formulate something where the active ingredient is releasing a little bit slower so you have a slower rise in the active and here with the sublingual tablets this is my ideal sublingual tablet because it stays around a lot longer you slowly feel those effects coming up over a period of an hour and there's a really simple trick if you want to speed up the dissolution rate you just chew on it and then you put that powder everywhere and you let that dissolve and then you just swallow it so that's easy but that's kind of the story about why this one is called controlled dissolve and why this initial labels because we always get uh before feedback. feedback like we we get bottles and we can look at the label and oh that looks nice and the effects are nice and we can kind of integrate it into our daily life take it out of the bottle it's really nice a lot of the times in the initial beta testing, we're dealing with powders like that. And it can be harder to incorporate powders into our life. So it's always nice when we get a pre-release bottle like this. So that brings us to the effects. We've taken yes. it a couple of times now. We actually filmed a very fun video on isoliquortogenin, which maybe you've seen at this point. I yes. don't know if this is possible on YouTube, but maybe like Erica right here in the, the editing, you can have that video pop up for and so liquid to Jenin. Yes. We did a really fun video here. Uh, and before filming it, we both took ISO liquid to Jenin. Absolutely. It definitely added to the whole experience. And uh, we're really excited to just be doing some more fun video content as well as educational too. So let us know what you think. Um, but also to get back to the effects of ISO liquid to Jenin. When we were filming this video, I think one thing that stood out to me was the lightness, the 
mood boost, but also smoothening out of jitters of my physical state. I felt relaxed. I felt mentally free in a way that was distinct from other supplements I've taken. It is quite subtle. It's not a supplement that feels so powerful or that it completely changes my state of mind, like Subroxy, for example, or Sibelius Sage is another example of a really powerful supplement for me. But isoliquidogenin is one that adds and elevates my mood to this point where things seem a little bit brighter in the world. And it's similar for me. For me, actually, isoliquidogenin is quite powerful. Um, it's in 25 milligrams, it's definitely quite a significant state change for me. I recently tried 50 milligrams, though, and that was quite a, a pronounced state change. Pretty interesting. Uh, for other people, 25 milligrams might even be a little bit too much. So in terms of pharmacology, the really interesting thing about isoliquidogen is the fact that it's acting on both GABA-A and GABA-B. So there's a lot of things that we have that are acting on GABA-A receptors, but there's not a lot of things that are acting on GABA-B receptors. And GABA-B receptors are very interesting for kind of controlling what our muscles are doing. It can smooth out our muscles. It can kind of take away a little bit of spasticity in your muscles. So it has a very nice muscle relaxant type of effect. And I definitely noticed that with isoliquidogenin. It's not as GABAergic as say lemon balm where it can be really like this warm GABAergic effect. And even our GABA powder or the GABA capsules that has almost like a little bit of a sedating quality to it. This doesn't, it's like a kind of an uplifting, physically relaxing, mood boosting effect. So that's coming mainly from the GABA-A and GABA-B effect, but also it is a pretty significant monoamine oxidase inhibitor. So that's something we really like. We like cyanidin-3-glucoside for that reason. We like Vignatex for that reason. Basically this monoamine oxidase enzyme it breaks down monoamines, and monoamines are the main neurotransmitters of interest, uh, serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine. Then you have epinephrine and some other minor monoamines, but those are the main three, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. And when you take a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, which is normally breaking down those monoamine neurotransmitters, now they're not being broken down as rapidly. So that means they can stay around longer. So let's say you have some release happening of dopamine and normally you would have the dopamine transporter come in and you would have the monoamine oxidase enzyme come in and either take away that dopamine back into the neuron or break the dopamine down and then it can't act on the receptors anymore. If you're taking a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, that dopamine can stay around a little bit longer. So that means you are combining GABA-A and GABA-B receptor activation together with monoamine neurotransmitter enhancements, which has a very nice mood effect. And then isoliquidogenin seems to have a direct effect on dopamine receptors on the D1 and the D3 receptor and one of the vasopressin receptors. And it has some effects on neurogenesis and it has some effects on no susceptive pathway, so it has some uh, pain effects. And the, the more I was researching isoliquidogenin, for those of you, you're probably well aware that I'm from the Netherlands now, uh, and I, I love eating licorice. And I always thought, you know, sometimes when I was in a little bit of um, 
a negative mood, especially if I had a bit of a headache or a little bit of aches and pains, I would get this strange craving for licorice. And I just thought it was a comforting food for myself. It reminded me of home while I was in the US and I could kind of have this like nostalgic experience and it's nice and cozy. But then I started figuring out a lot of the bioactives in licorice root, because this is coming from licorice root. <laughs> I don't know if we've mentioned that. We yet. didn't even mention yeah. it. Yes. <laughs> Isoliquitogen is one of the main flavonoids in licorice root. It's actually called a chalcone. It's a different type of flavonoid. So it's not a flavone, um, but this is a chalcone. And it is coming from licorice root. And whenever I consume traditional licorice, whether it is from the Netherlands or from Finland or from some of these other European countries, we like to put a lot of licorice root in the actual licorice. So if you're eating a significant amount of these licorice candies, especially ones that are actually coated with licorice root powder, those are some of my favorites, um, you're getting quite a bit of it. And there was always a palpable mood boosting effect for me. So when we started looking into licorice root and if we could come out with a licorice root extract, I wanted to make sure that if we came out with one, maybe it would be mood boosting. And then I found isoliquitogenin and some of my other colleagues found isoliquitogenin for different um, uses. So one of my colleagues, for example, really likes the effects of isoliquitogenin for his gut. Um, so that's kind of where the research started. We isolated it. And one of the reasons why we isolated it is because in licorice root, there is also a compound called glycerin. I think I'm saying that correct. It's kind of a difficult word to pronounce, but glycerin has some negative effects on testosterone production and blood pressure. So we wanted to avoid that. And that's kind of one of the main issues with licorice. And actually, if you go into a store and buy real licorice candy here, it will say, watch out if you have high blood pressure, limit your consumption of licorice root. And that's because there's glycerin compound. So we wanted to sidestep that. We don't want that in there. It's not really having any beneficial effects necessarily. We want some of these flavonoid compounds and isoliquitogenin just seemed like the most interesting one to go for now. Maybe at a certain point we'll go for other ones. But we thought licorice root was interesting because you see it pop up in traditional Chinese medicine all the time. It's a big one there. Licorice root actually comes from that part of the world. And of course, it's popular in the Netherlands and other European countries because, of course, we had a big presence there and with the spice trade and all of that and some obviously some ethically questionable stuff happened. Colonization. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Call it how it is. Definitely some weird stuff happened there. But the botanicals it, made it over. The botanicals made it over. And which, a part of your culture and a part of the uh, candy culture and mm -hmm. also a part of, you know, these mood boosting and pleasant nostalgic uh, foods that you're yeah. eating. And you see it in the U.S. too. You're mm -hmm. using a lot of cinnamon. Cinnamon yes. definitely is not growing in the U.S. It's coming from uh, Southeast Asian countries, from India. And that's where a lot of from Vietnam, um, Ceylon, um, Cinnamon. Uh, cinnamon is popular. Mm -hmm. So that's coming from that side of the world. And of course, it was brought back during the spice trade. And, and that's why you see a lot of interesting like spiced cookies in the Netherlands and spiced cookies in the US. Mm -hmm. And you see licorice candy. Um, and These traditional candies and foods wouldn't exist um, if it weren't for this history of colonization that we're talking about. So mm -hmm. the, the licorice memories that you have from the Netherlands 
actually go back even further and further east. And that's the case with many, if not most, of the botanicals that we talk about and that we have extracts from um, with Nootropics Depot. So it is really fascinating to talk about mm -hmm. the history and your personal experience with them. Um, so I do want to talk a little bit about these benefits with isoliquidogenin because something that we discussed earlier this week just between the two of us was that we wanted to eliminate subroxy from our daily stack. As you were talking about the benefits and some of the mechanisms for this mood boost from isoliquidogenin, I was thinking, oh, now I know maybe why I've been feeling overstimulated and a little bit pushed over the edge with my daily stack because subroxy is also a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. It is not actually. Um, no, okay. Subroxy is a dopamine reuptake inhibitor through the uroxalin A content, but we are taking also cyanidin 3-glucoside. And okay. cyanidin 3-glucoside is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. So real quick, how does the dopamine reuptake inhibitor in subroxy interact with monoamine oxidase? oxidase inhibitors. It would make it stronger and okay. especially because we're also consuming caffeine from yeah. caffeine. Ca if you look at it in this way, let's start with caffeine. Mm -hmm. Caffeine is binding to the adenosine receptors as an antagonist that is actually causing a release of monoamines, um, specifically dopamine and norepinephrine. If you combine caffeine with a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, which is actually happening within um, coffee already. Coffee contains beta-carbolines, things like harmaline, which are acting as monoamine oxidase inhibitors. It's actually potentiating the effects of caffeine. And if you watched our cyanidin-3-glucoside episode, we made some coffee and we combined it with cyanidin-3-glucoside to see how the monoamine oxidase inhibitor effects of cyanidin-3-glucoside would affect the effects of caffeine. Yep. And it made it a little bit stronger. Mm -hmm. um, same thing here. If you take isoliquidogenin together with some caffeine, it would potentiate the caffeine, but it would also kind of smooth out the caffeine. And the would way... the same thing happen with isoliquidogenin and subroxy, for example? Yes. So if you remember what I was just saying, if you have neurotransmitter release, mm -hmm. It goes from the synaptic baton into the synaptic cleft and you have dopamine floating around there and then dopamine or norepinephrine or serotonin can then act on the receptors. So it's floating around in the synaptic cleft. It can act on the receptors on the other neuron on the other side. Mm -hmm. Now monoamine oxidase is swooping in. It is breaking down that dopamine mm -hmm. or you have, for example, the dopamine transporter coming in and it grabs the dopamine and it puts it back in the neuron, awaiting another signal to come in to release that dopamine. But if the dopamine is not in that synaptic cleft, it can't activate the receptors. So if the dopamine is back in the neuron, nothing is happening. It's mm. just waiting for another release event. If monoamine oxidase comes around, and it just breaks down the dopamine there, then dopamine can't work on the receptors either because it's not dopamine anymore. It's a different compound now. It's been broken down. So if you're combining the two, then you're basically limiting the two mechanisms, two main mechanisms that are responsible for clearing dopamine. So First then, is monoamine oxidase, and mm -hmm. second is 
the dopamine transporter. Correct. Ah. So now you're getting a double up and you're adding some caffeine in the mix. That can be very stimulating. Okay. Uh, another thing is we've just been having a little bit of a stressful time. There's a lot of stuff going on at work. There's We're doing podcasts. We're doing different videos. Um, we're moving to a different place soon. So th- there's a lot going on in our, our lives. Our life is quite stimulating as it is. Yes. So perhaps Subroxy was just pushing things over the edge a little bit too much mm-hmm. to the point where we don't need it at this moment. I also think that the addition of cyanidin-3-glucoside and then isoliquidogenin into our daily stack is just creeping up that stimulation to the point where it was really noticeable. So we mm-hmm. took Subroxy out of our daily stack, but on the particular day... Well, and day, actually, mm-hmm. Subroxy was not a thing that was even part of our daily stack for yes. a very long time. Yes. But then in a bit of a down period, um, it was a little bit more boring. We had a little bit of a hard time getting motivated. We had a lot of paperwork to do. <laughs> we had a lot of paperwork to do, a lot of writing work to do. And I thought, hey, we do have some Subroxy still, so let's try some Subroxy. So we tried some Subroxy and really liked the effects. And then we kept taking Subroxy and then we both started feeling a little bit too stressed out, a little bit too stimulated and activated. And with that in mind, there's oftentimes this hey, should I be cycling on and off something for tolerance? Hey, maybe that's not even the reason why you need to cycle on and off mm-hmm. something. We weren't getting tolerant to the effects. No. We were getting more sensitive to the effects based on what's going on in our life. We were getting more sensitive to the unpleasant effects of Subroxy. So with that in mind and going way back into one of our episodes about mindfulness, you got to be in check with yourself you got to know what's going on in here and in your body and you got to listen to yourself so if you add new things to your stack maybe it's great for two weeks and then it starts becoming a negative and don't try and push through that negative just stop it lay off for a little bit yeah i'm not saying that we'll never take subroxy again for me once i get into a period where there's not as much excitement around me and as much stress and I need that pick me up again Subroxy is coming right back in so I just shelf it from now and I just come back to it absolutely another thing to consider is if you like to try new supplements often like we do then you also might want to consider cycling off of some of the supplements that you take just purely to make room for the effects for new supplements. Mm -hmm. And we always recommend that if you're trying something new, that you try it alone, which is exactly what I'm doing with the lion's mane mycelium in this very moment. Um, And this is something that we've also done with the isoliquidogenin just in our daily lives too, taking it by itself, taking it then alongside of our daily stack and seeing where it fits in and what supplements we might consider taking out so that we can make room for the new stuff. Because you could just stack and stack and stack and add more supplements on top of each other, but as many of you discuss on Reddit often, some of the products that you might really love in a certain combination don't work when you start adding different products or if there are major changes in your life. So that's where you really have to rely on your own experience. You have to trust yourself. And you also have to consider that all of the anecdotes that we tell you, our experiences, that's just what's happening for us. But what you might experience could be totally different. And it can and is just as valid because you know your body best. So to get back to talking about the benefits of isoliquidogenin then, I think it's fun to consider who might be interested in taking this product Mm -hmm. and for what purposes, because 
having a little bit of a muscle relaxation and smoothing effect is really nice for us in the summertime. We're doing lots of walking, lots of biking, lots of dancing, um, you know, lots of exciting uh, activities because it's so busy and, and full of life here in the summertime. Uh, the mood boost is always great, and we do have some more mood boosting uh, supplements in our daily stack, but this one definitely adds just a slightly different touch and different flavor of a mood boost. But aside from those things and the GABA-A and GABA-B effects, who might be interested in taking this and for what other purposes? So I think the main uh, kind of person who would want to be taking this is you're feeling a little bit on edge, but you're also feeling a little bit unfocused. So you want something that is both a little bit stimulating and focus enhancing and something that's a little bit relaxing and calming and stress reducing. And it's hard to find that in one product. And I think that's what makes isoliquitogen very interesting because it has a very pleasant uh, GABAergic effect but it is not um, lethargy inducing and it is actually a little bit focus enhancing. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you've been around for a long time and you know the GABA B thing, you might know one compound this might be a little bit similar to, one we are not going to discuss here for obvious reasons if you're in the know. Uh, but just think about it in a little bit in that sense. If you want something that's functional and GABAergic GABAergic and nootropic, two things you don't oftentimes see going hand in hand, uh, although I think a lot of GABAergics are actually very nootropic as well, like for example lemon balm, but a lot of people don't totally agree on this, but I think with something like isoliquitogen where you're getting GABA-A and GABA-B stimulation and then you're getting monoamine oxidase inhibition and some direct effects on dopamine receptors and some neurogenesis and stuff like that. I think this is the perfect relaxing mood boosting nootropic. Um, and a lot of you already like the flavonoids a lot. So for example, if you look at 7-8-DHF, it's also a flavonoid. It's having similar effects on BDNF, mood and stuff, a little bit focus. Here we're going in a slightly different direction, but it's a flavonoid. Then if you've ever seen 7-8-DHF, it's yellow. And if you've ever seen licorice roots, it's yellow. So a lot of these flavonoids are yellow. That has nothing to do with the effects, of course. Curacetin is also a little bit yellow, yellow-greenish. Um, that is not having those similar type of effects. So don't worry about the color. I just like bringing that up because I think it's fascinating that they're all yellow like what other compounds are bright yellow uh, yeah i love to berberine yeah i love to talk about the colors of the mm -hmm. products because it also helps me remember them especially because there's just so much available and we're trying new things all the time yeah but anyways long story short very interesting product for nootropic calming and also for pain inflammation and things like that neuroprotection it's a great one to just add to the stack as a, as a general um it probably won't be in our daily stack because we already have some things that are GABAergic and monoamine oxidase inhibiting. So our stack is a little bit more complex and doesn't really have the, um, there's not really a place for isoliquitogen in that. But 
I have, because I have a much larger bag of isoliquitogen and tablets that I've actually been, and you have as well, been trying out for months now, since February, I think. And the way I use it is if I've had a very stressful day and I want to relax, but I don't just want to fall asleep right away, I take some isoliquitogen and, and I'm relaxed, but I'm still awake and fluid in my brain and it's nice for reading a book. Um, if I'm stressed and tired, it can be really hard to read a book, but reading a book is really good for my stress levels. So I want to read my book. It's good for me, but I will usually just fall asleep. If I take something like isoliquitogenin, I can relax more I can get more immersed in the book. And that's nice. And on something, to be honest, like this podcast, it's nice to do it. Or uh, like when I have to act a little bit in one of our videos, it proved to be really nice. So. There, there's some cool effects with it and definitely worth picking up absolutely uh, and if you've noticed i'm i'm sublingualing this tablet well buccal administration now it's underneath here now so i've moved it from here i had it underneath my tongue for a little while now it's up here underneath my lip i'll move it down there down here another thing you can do if you want to do a kind of a controlled dissolve but a little bit quicker and I'll do that right now you can bite the tablet into four pieces so let me do that oh right now and then I'll put one piece here one piece there one piece there and one piece there and now I can still talk it's totally fine and now I'm getting four points of absorption. So and what do you call this? This is more buccal. So okay. these are your buccal membranes, your sublingual membrane is under your tongue. It is a little bit hard to talk with something under your tongue, but this works as well. So you can kind of just let things dissolve like this, speed up the effects a little bit. Mm -hmm. I like starting with it underneath my tongue, just let it sit there for like 15, 20 minutes, and then I start moving it around. And then at a certain point, I just get fed up with it, or I'm starting to notice the effects, and then I just chew the tablet, and I go about my, my day. My, so my what, are you, what are you noticing at this point, now that you've had the tablet, well, let's say maybe 25 minutes or so? Yeah, I've been talking about isoliquid. <laughs> <that long. laughs> yes, oh, we wow. have. There's a lot to say, for sure. What are you um, feeling? So I'm definitely feeling a mood boost. Um, I'm feeling like slightly at the back of my head, like a warm fuzziness. And that's something I always notice with GABAergics. Um, and just kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling even more comfortable in my own skin on this podcast. Because, of course, you're seeing us nicely here. But if I bring you into our world a little bit, the reason like we look so nice and lit up is because we have these two big lights behind us. And it, I'm getting used to it now, but it can be a little bit jarring and it can be harder to be myself. Like I really have to almost force myself to be myself, as meta as that sounds. Um, but with something like this, I, I don't have that as much. I can be myself quicker. So I think with that in mind, if you're in school and you have to give a big presentation and you're a little bit nervous about it and you want to be calmer but you also want to be focused on your presentation i remember this in let's see move that one out of the way i remember this in 
college sometimes I would kind of overcompensate and take a bunch of L-theanine and a little bit of lemon balm right before giving an important presentation and then I'd be standing in my presentation like oh yeah this is great <laughs> what am I talking about again that's not good I want to be focused but relaxed kind of in that flow state kind of that caffeine L-theanine effect and I think this isoliquitogenin kind of provides that and I'm feeling that now even though the effects I know will build over time. Um, I also noticed that when we did the video on uh, isoliquitogenin, I was also chewing on a licorice root a bunch and I had consumed two tablets of this because we had to do two different scenes where I was taking it and I slept really well. So that yes. night my sleep quality was really good. So all of this isoliquitogenin and then more of the compounds from the licorice root. And then later at night, I slept really, really good. Yes, and I, I woke also up noticed feeling that. Nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was something I wanted to mention was the sleep benefits. I didn't expect that. I wasn't sure if you had experienced that either, but I definitely noticed it the day after. And I slept well. I also didn't wake up with as much soreness as I, as I do often. Nice. So that's another benefit that you might experience or um, sort of look out for, be aware of if you are trying out isoliquidogenin as well. In talking about subjective effects, you didn't take this, but no. are you noticing anything different with the lion's mane you took? Yes, and I think we've talked plenty about isoliquidogenin mm -hmm. at this point. Yeah. So let's move on to our next and our main topic for the day for the podcast, which is the lion's mane mycelium. I took 500 milligrams, well, 516 milligrams about 40 minutes ago, and I'm feeling good. What I'm feeling relaxed. I feel a bit warm, uh, mm. but not flushed in my face, more so in my body. I feel that my circulation is a little bit improved, especially mm. in my hands. Um, in general, I have a better sense of my whole body, where I'm sitting, my posture. I feel a bit energized and speaking feels normal. I don't think that this has an effect on my speech fluidity or really my, my thought process in a really obvious way. If anything, it feels more physical than it does mental. And that can be the case for some of the mushroom supplements that we have, but this one's really focused on the physical experience for me at this point. Um, I'm not really feeling a mood boost, but my body feels more relaxed. My body feels more liberated in some way. Interesting. Maybe it is adding a little bit to my isoliquidogenin experience because I am feeling that a little bit. I was having a little bit of tension in my neck here, um, which I oftentimes experience if I've been writing and researching a lot. The isoliquidogenin I know helps with that. Maybe that's kind of an effect I've missed with the arenosine A. And if you look at some of the research, there is actually some effect with arenosine A on pain and inflammation. And I believe not arenosine A, but one of the other arenosines, I believe it is arenosine E, is acting on the kappa opioid receptor, which is a very interesting receptor. Um, it can cause some weird mood effects for some people for other people it can cause very like good mood effects and for other people it acts as a really good pain modulator so maybe that's one of the things i've maybe missed because i when i'm thinking about 
lion's mane, I'm really focused on the cognitive effects and I'm, I'm looking out for those and I'm not necessarily finding them acutely, but I'm probably so focused on keeping track of what's going on in my brain that I'm losing track of what's going on in my body. And maybe that's one of the things I've actually noticed with the renocene A. And it is, if you look at some of the research and some of the things people want to use it for, it's a really good one for nerve pain. And one of the reasons it is good for nerve pain is because of the effect it has on NGF. So I think we're ready now to just jump right into the effects this is having. So again, in a little bit, we will talk to James. We can talk about what a renosine A is. He'll draw some out probably on a whiteboard, I imagine, knowing Jay, he really loves his whiteboard and he's actually really good at drawing molecules, which by the way, I want to get good at this too at some point because it, it is pretty amazing that you can just draw out a molecule. It's, it seems pretty hard. Jay, by the way, for those of you who don't know and if you've seen some of his videos, he used to be a chemistry professor at ASU as well. So he's you're getting some very high class education basically from Jay when you're watching his videos. You know, I don't, it's still mind boggling to me just how expensive college is in the US, but I think you're paying like $40,000 a year to go to maybe one of Jay's classes back in the day. Now you're getting it for free on our YouTube channel. That's yes, pretty so amazing. if you were feeling a little bit overwhelmed by all the effects talk or just the general coziness of our conversation don't worry there's going to be some very hardcore science coming yeah, we're up gonna go deep. <laughs> in just a little bit especially with jay mm -hmm. um, but let's talk about the mechanisms of action that are happening with the lion's mane mycelium product that we standardize to 0.5 percent arenosine a yes and this batch actually was a little bit of a secret it actually has 0.8% arenosine A last I saw on the analytical testing. So it is higher, but we've kept it at 0.5%. And as we'll talk about later, it is hard to actually get that amount of arenosine A. So it might not seem like a lot of arenosine A, but if you look at some of the research and some of the researchers we've actually talked about who are big in the arenosine A research, because we have actually been communicating and working together with researchers in the arenosine A space. That's how we know a lot of what we know, how we've been able to achieve a lot of what we can achieve. One of these researchers thinks that arenosine A is active under a milligram. So very low amounts are active. So 0.5% and taking 500 milligrams, it's actually quite a bit. If my math is correct, that's two and a half milligrams, right? Yes. Yeah, 1%, 500 is five, yeah, right? Yep, yeah. sounds about right. <laughs> I always have difficulty working with percents on the fly. Um, unfortunately, I did not get my math gene passed on from my dad. Uh, he's very good at this kind of stuff. But anyways, you're getting about two and a half milligrams of arenosine A, a little bit more because this is 0.8%. So you're over that one milligram threshold in apparently according to this researcher, it is already active underneath a milligram. Starting from the beginning, mm -hmm. Uh, this arenosine A is coming from lion's mane mycelium. And lion's mane mycelium, for anyone who doesn't know, is quite a different substance than lion's mane fruiting bodies. And the mycelium is the sort of the baby, the beginning stages of the, li the lion's mane growth process. And 
the arenosine A has to be harvested at a very specific time, which Jay will also tell us a little bit more later in the podcast. So the process of getting this arenosine A from the lion's mane mycelium into a supplement product has to happen at a very specific time, very careful work. And then once we get this from the mycelium, then we can take it in its current form, which is a powder. So now we have the arenosine A, we know what it's standardized to, and we know that the effects are coming from its NGF modulating effects. Partially. Partially. And, and of course, we're just focused on the arenosine A because we're testing for arenosine A. That doesn't mean this mycelium is only producing arenosine A. There's a whole bunch of other compounds in there. But we know a lot about arenosine A, so we can talk about that. We can talk about some of the effects that we're going to experience from that. So. Arenosine A, one of the main effects it has is it stimulates the production of nerve growth factor, and that's NGF, what you've heard us talk about. If you tuned into our Tiger Milk podcast, you will have actually heard quite a bit about NGF and the receptor it acts on, TRKA, already, because one of the still un undetermined compounds within Tiger Milk mushroom, the sclerotium, is a compound that seems to act on the TRKA receptor in a similar way that NGF would. So the way NGF works is it binds to the TRKA receptor and that starts a big signaling cascade. You can actually read about the signaling cascade in the blog I did about tiger milk mushroom. I went a little bit more in depth about it. But basically when you activate TRKA with NGF or with other compounds like whatever compound is in tiger milk, you get this signaling cascade that produces nerve growth, that produces neuroplasticity, that has neuroprotective effects. So when you take it and neuroplasticity is enhanced, then one major attribute of that is enhanced memory, enhanced cognitive function. Because for those of you that are unaware of this, memory is really an interesting physical process. So when you encode a memory, it's not just fairy ghost space dust floating around in your brain doing this. Like, where is it going? If you, for example, have a thumb drive and you put it in a computer and you put a file in there, there's actually things that change in that hard drive that then encoded. Or if you go even further back, like actual hard drives or CDs, or if you really go further back and you look at like vinyl, for example, vinyl records, you actually have to cut grooves in there and those grooves are how your information is getting stored. Similar processes are happening in our brain. So you actually need that neuroplasticity. And of course, if you're taking something like lion's mane mycelium that is enhancing NGF synthesis, that's not enough to just make your memory better. You actually have to still do all of the behavioral stuff to initiate memory encoding. You have to read, you have to study, you have to do things. But while you're doing that, it's going to be more efficient when you have something like lion's mane mycelium in your system because neuroplasticity will be easier to get initiated and it will be easier to encode some of those memories. And if we zoom out a little bit to what we were talking about earlier when it comes to pain, obviously these pain effects are not going to come from direct 
acute stimulation of the NGF receptors or the TRKA receptor. It's coming from other things, more acute um, inflammation dampening effects, maybe the kappa opioid effect of some of the arenosine E that's in there, um, which I think I can start noticing that a little bit. There is like a, an interesting mood effect that's associated with this kappa opioid arenosine E effect where it's kind of like not necessarily in a bad way but maybe you'll understand if you're noticing something similar like a bit of an underwater feeling yes do you get that i do um, yes that's what i meant when i said it has a physical liberating feeling mm -hmm. and that's something that reminded me of the the process that you're talking about the physical process of encoding memories in the brain and it reminds me of the book the body keeps the score which is talking about trauma and talking about how trauma works in the brain and how trauma works in your body. And these memories that we have, uh, things in the past that might only exist in our mind, they did have a physical event attached to them uh, in our body and in our brain. And one element of this lion's mane mycelium effect that I really like is that somehow a lot of the, the tension or the discomfort that follows me along in my everyday has melted away and it feels a little bit underwater like but it also feels warm and it also feels very connected and while I'm not sure if there are changes happening because of NGF in my brain as we're talking I do think that over time this would be an effect that I would be really curious to measure or to just document for myself with the lion's mane mycelium because memory is also related to pain and pain is also related to how we remember a situation or how we respond to an action or an event that happens to our body or that um, is emotional or social and this is something that's really fascinating when it comes to lion's mane mycelium but other mushroom supplements as well because they cover so many different parts of our daily life and experience specific to pain and specific to how we perceive the world and how we perceive what's happening in our bodies. Yeah, and, and I think for general mindfulness and things like that, something like lion's mane mycelium is really interesting. I get these effects a little bit more pronounced from the tiger milk, um, what you're describing. I get it a little bit more acute, like a little bit more focus enhancing. Um, this though, when I'm talking about that underwater feeling, I think a lot of people have a bit of a negative connotation with that, but it's like if I'm in a pool or going for a swim in the ocean or something and I go underneath, there's just this insane level of quietness. Uh, like there's a pressure on you, there's this quietness, your mind slows down. It's a really unique experience. And I think that's kind of how I would describe maybe the effects here. Like it is almost unnerving how quiet my mind is getting now. And it might be because of the combination of isoliquitogen, because isoliquitogen does that to me too. It like kind of slows down my brain a little bit while still having nootropic effect but it it kind of dampens things so i'm not overthinking and i'm just more in the moment and i think i actually have never combined lion's mane mycelium with isoliquitogenin but it's almost like this combination is unlocking something in in both isoliquitogenin and lion's mane mycelium and i think this is kind of interesting because this is maybe the first time we've actually tried out well i 
tried out a stack on camera. That's really um, cool. But now you can kind of see maybe the difference in experience between Erica and myself, where maybe I'm noticing even more of this calming thing mm-hmm. in my brain. You're noticing it in your body. Um, and then if you take this long term, I'm actually curious to get you started maybe on some arenosine A if you're up for the experiment to Definitely. see what happens after a month or so. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then maybe on our next podcast, we can talk about what happened with your experience with the arenosine A. Definitely. One thing that I often notice with supplements or that I become aware of is how the center of my body feels, how my stomach feels how my breathing feels, um, because this is something that I have learned from meditation practices, from friends, from yoga, to actually focus on the center of my body, on this area close to my belly button. And while we've been talking, I was just thinking, I'm feeling really open, and I'm feeling like my stomach is relaxed. I don't have any tension there. I don't have any gas. I also find that I'm not thinking about breathing. Um, And that's nice because oftentimes I do have to think about breathing. I have to think about slowing down and letting my breathing be smooth and letting the the breath come in and out naturally and not stopping it or not holding it for too long. And throughout this entire podcast, I didn't even think about my breathing. And that feels like an achievement, something that I don't experience particularly often. So I'm very curious to see if that would continue or even become more pronounced with more time taking the lion's mane mycelium product this is actually an experience that is shared by one of our other colleagues uh, and he's been taking the lion's mane mycelium and he's noticed a, a huge uptick in his mood levels so his mood was a little bit low and after taking the lion's mane mycelium even the first day he was feeling really good and his uh, wife was actually mentioning to me that yeah that day he just was in such a great mood and I haven't seen him in such a good mood in a little while so I think that's really cool and it's cool to see it with you uh, I personally have not really noticed that but then again you, you see now things are very different for different people you're responding well to the lion's mane mycelium of course this is your first dose you're not even an hour in so let's see what happens after this podcast and after the call with Jay, uh, we'll come back and check in. But for you, it could be really good. For myself, as much as I love lion's mane and I'm involved with lion's mane, I'm really fascinated by cultivating lion's mane and looking into the compounds in lion's mane. Lion's mane just doesn't totally agree with me. I've never really gotten a whole lot out of it, but it is one of our top selling mushroom products and a lot of people have very significant effects with it like a huge uh, relief of brain fog and things like that and i do have to say my brain my my head feels clear now and i'm it's kind of hard to see if it is because of the isoliquitogenin because of the mycelium or the interaction and i think and I think we're about to get a call from Jay if I'm seeing it correctly. Yes. Uh, so my concluding remark will be uh, with me trying two different things out, being very experienced with bioassaying. You can see now on camera, it's kind of hard for me too to determine what is now actually coming from isoliquitogen and what's coming from the lion's mane mycelium, even though I've tried them a lot in separation. So I think there it's always important to try things in separation. And maybe if something doesn't totally work for you, maybe it actually needs a little bit of extra help from something else. Like 
this isoliquidogenin experience feels significantly different from my other isoliquidogenin experiences. And it seems to be because of a modulatory effect of the lion's mane mycelium. But just to summarize, because this is, of course, everything, the, the most important part of the, this podcast is lion's mane mycelium standardized to 0.5% tyrosine A and what that can do for you. So first, memory enhancement, cognition enhancement, and that's going to be a long-term effect. Secondly, neuroplasticity and nerve growth, just general nerve restoration. If you've had a nerve injury, if you're experiencing some nerve pain, that can be really good. And that's where a lot of research has focused on with arenosine A as well, and why arenosine A is such a interesting component. And that number three then would be neuroprotection because increased NGF synthesis, more NGF in the brain is very neuroprotective. I think there's actually, and I forget her name, but she actually said she was taking eye drops with NGF in it. And NGF is actually good for your eyes too, uh, which is quite interesting. But apparently NGF can get absorbed through your eyes and can get into your brain that way. And there's this woman who won a Nobel Prize, and I'm really blanking on her name now. We it's, can put it in the description below if you're curious to learn yes. more about it. And some of that research was on NGF and the effects it can have on the brain and it being neuroprotective. And in this sense, then it can have like a longevity type of effect too. The fourth effect, which Erica has mentioned now a few times, is it can be very good for uh, controlling inflammation, controlling pain in the body, controlling pain in the nerves. And I would actually be curious because you sometimes, since you're a musician, and musicians do, I don't know if any of you have are musicians or have ever observed musicians doing their thing, but you do some very strange stuff with your arms. And sometimes that results in some nerve pain. Um, and Erica is very into all of the the methods associated with minimizing this. What's that called? The Alexander method? Alexander technique. Yeah. Alexander technique. So you're really in tune with what's going on in yourself and you can detect nerve pain very quickly. Uh, and it's something that you really dislike. So I would be curious to see what happens with lion's mane mycelium. Do you notice less of that? Do you maybe notice even more insight into what's happening in different ways to uh, avoid it? And maybe it can be uh, something that's an adjunct to the Alexander technique. Maybe this could be really interesting for musicians. Definitely. I also think something to mention is that when taking um, this lion's mane mycelium, I have the feeling that I'm relaxed and I'm kind of at a maybe more meditative state already. So I feel more in tune, I feel more present. And one thing that is always interesting that we talk about is the products that we take with the supplements, they can have a benefit for these symptoms that we experience from everyday life, like soreness or maybe like nerve pain. But they can also help us change our behavior because of the mood effects that they have. And something that I'm curious to try with the lion's mane mycelium is, do I have a different, um, sensibility when I'm practicing that would prevent me from pushing myself over the edge to the point where I would cause myself um, a nerve injury or cause myself 
this pain because the more aware that I become of myself and depending on what I'm practicing, sometimes I find it really easy to go over that edge, especially if I'm feeling excited or emotional or I have a lot of motivation to get something done. Um, but this kind of mood state that I'm in with the lion's mane mycelium, I'm curious to try it out and see, does it help me kind of stay back from that edge and just practice in a more relaxed physical state, which would then prevent the injury from even happening in the first place. And that's really my ultimate goal when it comes to the mindfulness and the physical, the, the mind-body connection is to prevent the injury from happening in the first place. And if it does happen, then to address it as quickly and effectively as possible. So perhaps lion's mane mycelium could be a really good companion for that effort. And if anyone else is um, you know, a maker or a musician or you're working outside or you're doing a lot of manu manual repetitive labor, you probably experience some of these issues yourself. And I would be really curious to hear from anyone who has tried the mycelium product, if that's helped you because this applies to people who are working with their bodies, who are doing really focused, specific work, because a lot of times we can lose track of what we're actually doing and how much tension we carry when we're so focused and so um, enthusiastic about our work. But I think the mycelium really helps to pull back into the present moment and then be aware of every part of our body that's contributing to the task at hand. So, and I think you noticed, uh, mentioned effect number five too, mm. and number five is mood boosting. Yeah, It's not going to be mood boosting for everyone. Pay attention to that. If you're not noticing a mood boost, or you're maybe even noticing a negative mood boost, maybe lion's mane mycelium is not for you. You can definitely thick it out a little bit, try it for a couple days and see. But if it is going to be mood boosting, it will be a pretty immediate effect. And I think you're noticing maybe some of the mood boost. It looks like we're actually getting a call from Jay. And this is perfect timing because we've really discussed the effects of the lion's mane mycelium at length. And it's time to talk about the nitty gritty science. So we're going to bring Jay, the director for Omniant Labs and Nootropics Depot and Natrium Health uh, Quality Control Director on to tell us a little bit more, actually way more about the science behind this lion's mane mycelium extract, where it's coming from, how we made it, the controversial uh, decision to come out with a mycelium product after years of sticking with fruiting bodies. And here he comes, Jay, and we're so excited to show you this conversation and learn more from him. Hey, Jay, how's it going? Hi, guys, good to talk to you again. Yeah, yeah. you too. Thanks for coming on again. So we're really excited to be talking with you about lion's mane research and mycelium and the difference between fruiting body and mycelium and everything that's happening in the lab at Omnium Labs. So tell us a little bit about where you're standing right now. So I am uh, in the back of one of the sides of the lab. Uh, this is where we do the bulk of the mushroom research. As you can might be able to see, there's some fruiting body and mycelium parts that we have here. Um, this is where we do all of the TLCs, the analytical work, the reference material creation, uh, barring some instruments that are kind of scattered throughout the lab due to power requirements and power balancing that has to happen in the lab, uh, evacuation for the fume hood, things like that. 
And as we talked about earlier in the podcast, the main focus here will be why we decided to get some lion's mane mycelium and actually get some arenosine A staminized in there. So this is something that, as far as we know, has never been done before. We're the only company in the world that seems to have a arenosine A reference standard and that seems to have an arenosine A standardized mycelium now. And that's all thanks to the work that's going on in the lab. If it wasn't for our in-house lab, that's not something that can be done. And I think a really interesting point to discuss there, and that's what we'll get in with Jay too, is we often get questions about third-party testing and all of that, and is in-house testing good enough? This shows you that in-house testing has the capabilities to do things that are otherwise not possible. You can't go to a third-party lab and expect them to make an Arenacine A reference standard and for them to then test something that's actually always been impossible to test. You can only pull that off with the capabilities we have. And you can only pull that off if you have someone at the helms like Jay. So Thanks. tell us a little bit about the, the initial stages, I guess, of this uh, process. Of the mycelium project specifically? Yes, correct. Because we started this yes. one four or five years ago now. As long as I've been here and even before <laughs> me, this is a work in progress. Yeah. But yeah, so um, just a quick touch on the third party thing, right? Everyone has this notion that third party somehow means objective and accurate and precise and it's just not true, right? Um, I made a video a little bit ago, it's gonna be posted or it might be posted already by the time this video comes out um, that just kind of highlights the difference between what third party means and what lab shopping is and what dry labbing is and all that happens whether it's in-house or third party regardless. Um, what third party can do sometimes is allow people to say, not our fault, it was the lab's fault, right? And kind of remove themselves from their obligations that they otherwise would have and then confuse people about what it means. So if you were to pay someone to do the work that we did here, a, first of all, it pretty much can't be done. Um, there is no company that would do this. And if you could find one, and I know one or two that I would propose if I had to, um, they would charge exorbitant amounts. I and mean, we're talking tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars and years of time, right? That's what they would charge us. So just like everyone knows, if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. If you want it done cheaper, you should do it yourself. Um, that's what we have to do. So we have to in-house the expertise. We have to in-house... Uh, the equipment, we have to in-house in the time, the space, the money, um, all while running an active business. So it's a lot of juggling plates at once. Um, and so if we wanted to do what we do here at Nootropics Depot, then we have to use the equipment that we have. We do it our way, and that means in-housing it. So how Luckily, um, the, the quality system is built to absorb such a, a time and expertise and uh, money uh, sink essentially because labs are money sinks right you spend more money on labs than you get back out um, as much as i would love to be a profitable industry at uh, omnia labs we don't we don't generate positive revenue yet yet hopefully one day we will um, but it's hard to do right the business structure for labs is hard so especially when you're making reference materials so if we were to go to a company and pay them you know here's five hundred thousand dollars please um, make this reference material for us and they said cool we'll get back to you in two years okay fine let's say that happens they do that, they make it, they sell it to us at, the prices that we pay for some reference materials are on the order of $700, $800, $1,200 for one milligram of material, just so we can do analytical work. Those are some of the prices we pay for reference materials. And I have to review and approve the budget so I know exactly what these numbers are. 
If we were to do that with a third-party company, they would make it and sell it to us at $1,000 a milligram, and then they would turn around and sell it to all our competitors too, who may or may not do stuff with it. They might sell it to other labs who may or may not do stuff with it, who may or may not build proper analytical methods. I mean, you have no control over what happens to that material after they do it. So in addition to the, can it be done right? Can it be done timely? Can it be done um, in a cost-effective manner? You also, we now also have control over that standard. We decide where that standard goes, who we give it to to work with, if we want to do proficiency testing or analytical uh, work with our labs, we control all those things. So that's one of the benefits of doing it in-house the way that we did it here for the Arenacine. And that's kind of for everything, not just this mycelium project, but definitely here. I mean, it, it has allowed us to do really exceptional things, in my opinion. Uh, and Erica, you had a question earlier, I think. Yeah, I was going to ask you what the benefit of having the in-house lab is, but you already... Sorry, can you speak up a little bit? I'm getting a little bit of echo. <laughs> okay. Say, say it again, Erica, go a little, uh, yeah. little bit louder. I wanted to ask you what the benefit was of having an in-house lab, and you really laid it out super clearly. So beyond having it being more cost-effective than a third-party lab, you can also control the standard. And perhaps that's a good um, entry point to talking about what standard are we talking about? Um, what kinds of things are you testing for with this Linesman Mycelium product? And what have you been testing for that might be different than other third-party labs that they wouldn't be able to test for? What's special about this project? So um, most of the things we do around here in Tropic Sipo are standardized extracts, right? So we know this plant or this species or this genus makes these molecules and we extract them under specific conditions so that we can maximize the concentration of those molecules. And then uh, we test the material, we build the analytical method that tests specifically for those molecules that we have targeted. That's generally how it works. With this one, it's a little bit different because this is not a standardized extract per se. It's more like a standardized product, right? It's rare the case that you can grow a saffron flower, I think it is, or a stem or a stigma. This is our yeah, product stigma. from. <laughs> and, and by growing it a certain way, you can ensure that it has X amount of uh, saffronelles or whatever the actives in it. I forget off the top of my head. Right? You can't. That's just. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Thank you. I knew you'd know it. Um, so, like, you don't. Like you, you generally don't have that level of control over a plant because the plant's gonna do what the plant's gonna do, right? Especially at commercial scale. If it's out, if it's not grown in a greenhouse, it's grown outside or it's wild forged, right? You don't have control of nature. You don't have control of the environment. The plant's gonna do what the plant's gonna do. But with this mycelium being liquid cultured, you do have that control. So we can decide this is what goes into the growth medium. This is how we tweak it. This is how we change it. And we can ensure that even at, without doing a standardized extract, that the nominal amount, you know, the amount we expect to be present of arenosine A is always going to be at least that 0.5% under the current product and under the current conditions under which we grow it. Now, we already know things about how we're growing it so that we can better optimize and maximize that value. So that's kind of the next stage of things that we're going to be doing. Um, but for right now, for where we are today, we already know a, a set of growth conditions that allow us to reproducibly hit at the commercial scale the 0.5% arenosine A and, um, and that's the first gen of the project, Pro product, pr both project and product. Um, and now, I there's think, other things, so, go ahead, Emil, yeah. Well, I think one important thing now that we're talking about kind of the growth conditions, we haven't discussed that on the podcast yet, so I will quickly interject here and, and kind of give, ah, a, yeah, give a very high-level <laughs> overview of what's happening there. But basically, 
when you're growing liquid culture mycelium, it is exactly what it sounds like. We are growing under a submerged liquid medium. When we're growing normal fooding bodies, just from a solid state, mycelium, growing it on grains, putting it in a substrate, it's all solid. And then those solids are outputting fruiting bodies. And if you do that with mycelium, then you get mycelium on grain. And then it's very hard to isolate the mycelium from the grain. So if you grow mycelium in a solid substrate, you can never get a very pure mycelium product because you will always end up having some amount of grain in there. It's kind of yep. hard to, to think about this if you've never actually seen mycelium on grain. But if you see it and you open up a bag full of mycelium on grain, it's a very thin coating. It's, it almost looks like there's a little bit of mold on some sort of grain like rice. So it's not like it's big chunks of mycelium that you can just rip off the grains. It is very small amounts with way more grain than mycelium. So to get around that, it's way easier if you can grow it in a liquid state. And then you can basically just take the mycelium and you can filter it out of the liquid. So to get there, Jay, can you hold up that agar plate that you had earlier? So this is basically where you start. If you start making a liquid culture, it is really hard to actually see if you have any sort of microbial contaminants or mold species in there. It's much easier to see that on an agar plate. So if you jump right ahead and you make a liquid culture, there's a very high likelihood that that liquid culture is going to be contaminated and you're going to miss it. So the first thing you do is you grow that mycelium on an agar plate. You look at it very carefully. You make sure there are no contaminants. It's pretty easy to spot on an agar plate. You'll see little spots of fuzzy mold. They can be a little bit green. Dots and, yeah. Exactly. Pretty easy to spot. If the plate looks completely clean, then you get basically a broth going. There's some sugars in there, there's some proteins in there, basically all the, the basic building blocks for life. What we have to consume, the mushroom has to consume too. So you build this broth, but you have a little bit of a trick up your sleeve. The arenosine A is not being made when the mushroom or when the mycelium is at its happiest. There needs to be a certain amount of stress too. So you can't make this liquid broth too perfect because then the mycelium is going to be too happy. You have to give it something that it doesn't like. Like basically imagine that you make a renosine A if you're sitting in a room being blasted with music you don't enjoy. That's kind of what we have to unfortunately put this mycelium through. So then you've made this perfect broth and we have a, a really excellent recipe. There's been a lot of research with a lot of different additives and minerals and all sorts of stuff that's being put in this broth. And then that broth is very conducive to making a renosine A. And then you have to harvest it at the right time too. But first you have to actually grow it. So you take a chunk of that agar plate with mycelium on it, you dunk it in sterilized broth. So that broth has to be completely sterilized. You have to you actually put it in a sterilizer, basically a giant pressure cooker. You call it an autoclave sometimes in, in the more medical lab world. And then you heat it up to a very high temperature and it kills everything in there. So it's completely sterile. And then under a laminar flow hood or 
Now, I don't really think there's any other way you can do it. You have to do it under a sterile stream of air. Then you have to very carefully, with a sterile blade, take a little chunk of that and put it in your broth. But that's Sounds like you've done this before. <laughs> I have actually done it before, and we have actually extracted yeah. some of that liquid culture in the lab. And yeah. We did find some yeah. arenosine A in there, not a huge concentration. And that's because what I did was a two-stage process. So I made first the agar plate, which I cloned from one of our fruiting body experiments, and that's what Jay is holding there. So I actually took one of our lion's manes, I cut into it under very sterile conditions, and I put it on a sterile agar dish, and then that cloned the mushroom. I got the mycelium of that fruiting body. And then that mycelium I put in the initial broth, and it was kind of a, a small jar like this. And then from that small jar, I scaled it up to a much larger jar of broth, um, which I think Jake can kind of show the, the sizes we're talking about. Yeah, so like you'll start out with a small jar. I think this one's 250. Correct. Yeah, so that's you put a where little I started. And then we scaled it up. And then you can go to up that. to a liter. Correct. Yeah. And I don't want to take it down, but you can see there's a big old four, five liter mama jamba up there. So you can kind of just keep scaling. And, and, that's, and that's really how you do it. So you, you keep kind of scaling it up because the one thing to keep in mind here is that it has to be done in a certain amount of time. If you give this liquid culture mycelium a lot of time to cultivate, then the arenosine A levels are going to show up and they're going to go away again. So there's a very specific harvest window too. So basically you have to keep growing this mycelium and to have as much starter stock as possible and then put it in a bigger batch and try and grow it as quickly as possible. And that means you have to do multiple different stages. So you can kind of see how complex this is getting now. It's really a lot harder than growing fruiting bodies. Like this is a completely next level thing. And it has nothing to do with mycelium on grain at this point. So I have a question for you related mm -hmm. to what is in the mycelium product itself, because you've talked a lot about the, the need to kind of harvest this arenosine A at a very specific time. Are you harvesting it from liquid? And yes. what are you doing with that liquid? How does it get from the liquid culture into the final capsule form? So if you look at it in that liquid, once you've been able to grow it, and then there's all bunch of floaty solid mycelium in that liquid, then you can take that liquid and put it through a filter and you can get rid of the liquid and you end up with the mycelium. And then you can kind of rinse off the mycelium and then you have as pure of a mycelium as possible. And then going back really quick to the mycelium on grain, you would never be able to do this with mycelium on grain. And another problem is that mycelium on grain simply seems to take too long because it is a very short period in which this arenosine A pops up, which is perfect for this liquid culture method, but it is not great for grains. So there's two advantages then to liquid culture. One, you can grow it in the right amount of time. Two, it's in the liquid and you can very easily filter the liquid out and then you end up with pure mycelium. And that's where the real analytical science starts to come in. So we actually don't do anything else to it at this point. We just grow very high quality liquid culture mycelium. We filter it, we rinse it to purify it a little bit and then it gets dried under ideal conditions to preserve the arenosine A, and that's it. Okay. The product we just put out is just pure lion's mane mycelium. It's not an extract. It's just 
mycelium, which is really amazing that we've been able to hit this level of 0.5% arenosine A without doing any sort of extraction. So just think in the future what we can do once we start doing extraction on a raw material that already has a very high concentration of arenosine A. So what kind of instruments in the lab are you using to make this liquid culture into the actual capsule itself? So in the lab for making the reference material, we don't need to actually start with the liquid culture, right? We don't even need to start with the agar. This is essentially our agar library. Um, we can start with the actual powdered mycelium material and we can extract stuff out of that. So once it's been made at commercial scale, then we can just use that as our fodder to feed the creation of the reference material. So when we start with that powder, normally if you just take the mycelium on grain that you were talking about, it's gonna make arenosine A in the sample, like when the whole bag is colonized and they put it into little jars, it's gonna make them at super low concentrations, right? We're talking PPM, you know, parts per million concentrations. And so um, there's not enough there to actually try to extract out. And we know that because we spent a lot of time trying to extract it out of just regular fruiting bodies or mycelium and grain products that you can buy in the market. And what ends up happening is you have to start with 10 kilograms or 100 kilograms of raw material to make a milligram or 10 milligrams of arenosine A, right? Because even if it's all there, you don't get all of it when you make the process, right? Your extraction efficiency for one step might be 60%, and then the next step it might be 20%, and the next step it might be 80%, but that's only 80 of 20 of 60, and it just keeps getting smaller every time you have to work and process the material. And this is probably something you've heard me talk about on other podcasts or on Reddit at some point. When we're making extracts, it's not like you're increasing the amount with everything else. You are deleting stuff and you're deleting some of the stuff that you want. So you keep getting rid of things. You keep getting rid of beta-glucans, you keep getting rid of alpha-glucans, you keep getting rid of fats, of proteins. And in that process of getting rid of stuff, you're also getting rid of arenosine A. So yeah, you, you yep. need a lot to get 99% purity plus of arenosine A. So, we, um, so once we have the mycelium content that is in the 0.5, in our particular sample, 0.8% arenosine A value, we can then use that because we know we nominally know our starting num number, so we can estimate our extraction efficiencies for optimization of all the steps along the way so that we minimize the losses at each step, and then we can also maximize how much we created. So our first arenosine A standard we ever made, I think we got like two and a half, maybe three milligrams. The second one we made, I think we're up to 250-ish milligrams. Oh, like, wow. well, you can see the difference. Yeah. <laughs> 250 times or 120 times more stuff um, just by knowing how much is there originally and where are the losses coming from. So when you're making the reference material, it's not just, oh, take this stuff and do a couple extractions and get the answer, right? You have to optimize all the steps, otherwise you lose so much along each step and you don't know that you're losing it um, that it just makes it more difficult. So we use our prep chromatography system from Buki for a lot of the automated parts. So we'll show some, some images and shots of that. Um, for just normal freeze drying to make fruiting bodies look like this, right? For extracting for other products, heresines, ricinones, et cetera. Uh, we have a Buki lyophilizer, a freeze dryer as you guys call it. Um, and then we have for just removing solvent from stuff, right? If you're gonna do a solvent extraction, you're gonna add a liter of ethanol to something. Um, well, that doesn't do you any good to extract it into the ethanol if you have a liter of ethanol. So you gotta have a way to get rid of the ethanol, but keep the, the actives left over. So we have a, in the hood over here, a Buki 
R300 is the uh, model we have of the Rotovap. So for getting rid of solvents and things like that. So that's some of the, that, that's some of the reference material creation equipment that we use. But it doesn't do any good to just merely make the material if you have no way to measure it. So we have a couple of waters, UPLCs, UPLC MSs that we do the analytical work, which is nice because then it gives us MS confirmation that we made the right material. And you know, and then all of the corresponding difficult analytical science questions that come up with that. You know, like we see this peak, is that the is that the sodium adduct? Is that the potassium adduct? Did we get the wrong molecule? <laughs> like what's going on here? And obviously, at that point, we can't just run something through the UPLC and go, okay, yeah, that, that looks like a renosine A, it's pure, before we have the reference standard and say, yeah, this is a renosine A, we're just going to run with it. This, this is the peak where it should kind of be, we're going to guess, so we have to set it up for some sort of qualification, right? What does that process look like? Right, so... Um... There's a video that I want to do on like what is calibration and how is a reference material used and how do you quantitate things using chromatography. Um, and we'll cover that in a different video because it's very detailed and pretty nerdy. A lot of people probably don't want to listen to it. But, um, but in short, merely having the material is not good enough, right? You have to have a way to quantitate it. So we, we use quantitative NMR um, in order to determine we have this pure compound that we made. We know it's pure because we see these properties on the LC, these properties on the UPLC-MS, these properties on the TLC or the HPTLC. Like we have a reasonable estimate of purity, you know, 80%, 90%, 95%, 99%. So we know some nominal numbers for purity, and then we can send it off for quantitative NMR that'll say, okay, here's your number, 98.4, right? And then it's like, okay, that is the number for this material. That becomes the benchmark for all measurements moving forward. So. Um, that's how we did it for renosine A and for some other standards that we'll get into in the future as well. And of course, one of the reasons why we send it off for those that are unaware of what an NMR, what kind of a, a beast of right, a, yeah. a piece of equipment oh. that is. Can you kind of explain a little bit? Uh, uh, yeah, sure. So if, if you've ever had an MRI, right, where you lay in the tube and you go in the thing, right, an MRI is an NMR for molecules, right? Actually, the way I like to say it is an MRI is an NMR for people. Um, <laughs> it's the same technology. Essentially, you have a giant magnet that you have to put the molecule inside or you put the person inside, and then it excites the hydrogen atoms if you're doing proton NMR, which is what we do, and then it excites the hydrogen atoms, um, and then it measures the difference in the magnetic field, both pre and post uh, disturbance, and then it can generate um, what looks like a chromatograph, but it's not actually a chromatogram. Um, but uh, it'll generate a spectrum, an NMR spectrum that can be interpreted and then you can deduce. And you can do that technique quantitatively so you know, um, because all hydrogen atoms are the same, right, hydrogen is hydrogen, hydrogen, that a hydrogen atom here at this signal intensity uh, under these experimental conditions means this number of hydrogens. Since you know the structure, which can also be solved from NMR, um, and you know that it was hydrogen that you were measuring, and you know the experimental conditions, you can quantitatively deduce what that number is, and that's how you get the 98.4 or 99.2, things like that. And now that we have kind of a, a certified reference material in a sense, then now we can use that <laughs> reference material to make sure that the additional reference material we extract is actually what right. it is, right? So, yeah, exactly. So once we make the first one and we get it fully quantitated through all the different orthogonal techniques, you know, LC, LCMS, HPTLC, TLC, uh, QNMR, proton NMR, whatever it may be, now we say, okay, anything we make in the future, we can compare to that and we can do a, what's called a value assignment based off that number. So if our first standard, the one that we got three milligrams of, was 98.4%, when we make the next standard, it's not going to be the same, right? It'll be a little different. Even if you follow the same process, it'll be a little different. So yeah, we got 250 migs of it or 270 migs or whatever the number was, but this one might be 97.2%. We use that first 
standard in order to assign the value and determine the concentration of that second standard. And so um, that second standard, of which we have a lot more, as it gets consumed through testing and analysis and research and development, things like that, um, we can then use that to assign the next value. So it establishes essentially like a value chain that's called traceability, um, and that, that's what has to happen for any standardized or certified reference material like it's made, whether you make it in-house or whether you buy it off the shelf. Ultimately, that same process is happening. Okay, so in short, I think you can see why this is a four to five year process. So I think, Erica, you, you've, you've seen a little bit of what goes on at our place. I had a, a big, like bio hood, laminar flow hood. Mad scientist Our stuff, guest yeah. room was a, uh, during the pandemic, it was a uh, mushroom laboratory and I was making some of this liquid culture and we were really just exploring. And I think that's kind of at the heart of our company. We could just go, yeah, this is a liquid culture mycelium. According to the research, according to everything we did, there should probably be some heredity A in there. And if we did that, then probably three years ago, we could have come out with Product. One thing I noticed when you were growing mushrooms was that the results were not particularly consistent because the parameters, the growth environment is changing all the time, depending on the weather, depending on the amount of moisture that stays in the growing environment, depending on whether the air is moving as it should. So getting to a point where the mycelium is consistent sounds like an incredible feat. And then I'm understanding this correctly, that all of the mycelium in the Lion's Mane mycelium product was actually grown in Omnian Labs. Not, not the actual product we have. We have a, okay. a partner that we work with because consider this. Remember the uh, mycelium I was generating in the one liter bottle? Mm -hmm. I think maybe from that entire one liter bottle, we got out a few hundred milligrams of Lion's Mane mycelium. Okay. And we are talking now about hundreds of kilos. That's so, a lot of liquid culture. Yeah, those <laughs> bioreactors are the size, the size of buildings. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. So who has those bioreactors then that you're working with? They're in a secret location. Oh, a secret location. <laughs> <laughs> no one can know. Yeah. Okay, I see. Okay, so this so this um, source then, where you're getting the mycelium from, then you're testing that against your own reference standard with the in-house lab and making sure that it's at the quality that you want to release as the product. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, so just a little note on that. Even though we're growing the mycelium in such a way that we're maximizing the arenosine A content, uh, the mycelium, as grown this way, are not unidimensional. They make other things. And we've seen these other things in the material. And we think we know what some of them are, but we don't necessarily have reference compounds for those. So we have to work with um, one of the partners that grows, that actually does the growth. So that way we can say, we think we see this and this. What do you guys think? And they say, actually, we think we see this and this. So there's kind of an overlap. Um, so we're, we can work with them on the quantitative and the analytical side for both the identi identification of what these compounds are, and then, because we have a reference material capability, we can collect them if they're at high enough concentration to make it worth it, and also if it's a molecule we even care about, right? If it's argosterol, like who cares all mushrooms like that, right? It's not argosterol. It's, okay. It's a real scene B. But anyway, <laughs> you can cut that out if you want. But, uh, um, but yeah, there's other arenosines that are there. They're there all along, and we're in the process of measuring them and making the product better and more standardized. 
Um, but again, it's going to be a long time, so I don't want to make any promises that, oh, it'll be there tomorrow, right? It's, it's going to be a long time. So now that you are, well, we are at the point where the Lions Made My Ceiling product is in the world, I think a lot of people have this question um, because Nootropics Depot has been releasing fruiting body extracts of mushrooms for years and didn't have any mycelium products. So what was the decision like to start a mycelium research project and then release a mycelium project or a mycelium product in the first place? Yeah, so that is a long answer, so I won't spend tons of time on it. But basically, for a long time, there's been a, a division in the consumer side of the industry about do you want fruiting body or do you want mycelium? Well, unfortunately, the mycelium was mycelium on grain. It was grown that way, not controlled that way. Mycelium going to do what mycelium going to do. So those products were very batch-to-batch -batch variants. And so some people say, oh, I took this mycelium on grain and it's great. And this other person said, I took it and it wasn't great. And maybe they don't even know it's mycelium on grain. Maybe they think it's just pure mycelium when it's not. Or maybe it was an extract of mycelium that was grown on grain. Like there's just huge confusion as to what it was. So when we got here, when I got here, you know, four and a half, five years ago now, whatever it is, and we started um, just really looking closely, like, okay, what are the molecules that actually do cool things from this mushroom? Why do people take it? Um, we, found, we, we figured out that like, there's some hericinones that are interesting that you know, promote TRK and NGF and BDNF and things like that. Um, but also there's arenosines, right? And arenosines were kind of the focus. And people have this notion, arenosines, mycelium. Arisinones, fruiting body. And after you look at both the literature, which is still evolving, right? Papers are still coming out today about this stuff. This is not old research. This is new research. The last 20 years has probably been most of the research published in Lions Mane, and I think I've read all the papers. So um, as what we're learning is that, A, first of all, the nomenclature of these very things is utterly ridiculous. And I got the board here. I want to go through in a minute to point this out. So just the very concept of arenosines is not what people think it is, right? And the same thing for hericinones. People say, oh, hericinones come from the fruiting body. Well, maybe, maybe generally that's true. Um, but when you say hericinones, you're talking about such a large class of molecules that's both made by, made for, and used by the mushroom and the mycelium at different stages in the growth. That becomes a useless statement. It doesn't make any sense to say hericinones this, arenosines that. Let me show you why. So I drew up some structures here on the board, everyone's favorite chemistry structures. So please excuse my, my chemistry pointing out here. Professor and <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, so like here's arenosine A, right? This is the interesting molecule. This is what our product is standardized to, things like that. Um, here is hericinone A. So people say arenosines, mycelium, hericinones, fruiting body. Okay, well that's cool. But there's another class of molecules that a lot of people don't even talk about, which also have NGF and BDNF um, uh, promoting activities called heresines, right? Here's a structure of heresine A. It's another reference material we've actually created, right? But here's a structure of hericinone C. So what do we notice about these? What we see is that heresine A has this structure, and hericinone, which is supposedly a completely different type of molecule, is essentially the exact same molecule. The only difference is this little ketone group. And therefore, when you see this happening, and right now there's, I think, 26 identified arenosines and somewhere on the order of 20, or 20, 20 to 30 hericinones, and then a handful, maybe 5 to 10 
uh, heresines, and then there's erin type, or there's arinocerins and heracerins, right? These are molecules people aren't even talking about. The literature and the scientific people like myself talk about it, but in, in common parlance you don't hear this. But it doesn't make sense to talk about hericinones when sometimes you're talking about molecules like these that have certain abilities in the body, but you're also talking about molecules like these. And they're not made by the mushroom or the mycelium at the same time, at the same place, in the same composition, the same concentration. So that's like a silly way to approach it, right? The mycelium does make arinosine A, yes. It also makes uh, some heresinones. It doesn't make heresinone A, I don't think. But it does make some heresinones. And so the, the very notion that we divide all the molecules into these two camps and we put each camp into a particular growth stage is just false. It's belied by the data. It's not true. And we see that in our very product, right? There are other molecules present in our, in our product that are arenosine, arenosine A and other arenosines as well. Even though we're not you know, standardizing the growth conditions or optimizing the growth conditions for them, they happen to come along for the ride, right? It's the way that the mycelium makes arenosine A, right? The chemistry, the biochemical pathways that are necessary to make this also makes other molecules that can be slightly different, right? I don't want to modify my drawing because it's so pretty, but um, by, by, changing the, by changing the molecule a little bit, right? Get rid of, getting rid of a double bond here or a double bond there, right? The, the mushroom or the fruiting body, or excuse me, the mycelium um, makes these other molecules and they just kind of go along for the ride, right? And it might turn over some of these molecules more, more quickly than others. So during the growth scheme that we're trying to maximize arenosine A, um, it might be making arenosine B, arenosine C, arenosine D, yada, yada. But then as soon as it makes arenosine D, it turns it over and makes it into something else, right? But it doesn't do that with the other ones, right? Mm -hmm. So we're just, we as a, hum as a species are just beginning to learn exactly what this fungus is doing at what stage in its growth and um, what we need to do to get the active ingredients out of it that we actually care about. And we need to get away from this Perisinone's this and arenosine's that. No, 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 that, those are false categories, right? This arenosine, this stage, this location, this quantity, this composition, this heresine, this stage, yada, yada, right? That's a better way to talk about it. And I think one of the reasons, though, because all of this is kind of in its infancy, we know a little bit of what heresine A does, we know a little bit of what the heresinones do, but for some reason, even though a lot of the research is on the fruiting bodies. If you look at human clinical research, pretty much all of the human subjects have gotten fruiting bodies that are mainly expressing some of these other compounds, the, the different classes of the heresines and the heresinones, not necessarily arenosine A. So it's kind of funny that a lot of research seems to have also focused on arenosine A and what it is doing. And a lot of those research studies over the years have gotten shared on the r slash nootropics subreddit and in various different mushroom subreddits. So for some reason, there's been a really big emphasis always on arenosine A. Like, oh yeah, we, we hear this all the time. Mine's name is great, but the fruiting body is useless. All you need is the mycelium, and all you need is arenosine A, because all you get from lion's mane is those NGF effects, and nothing else matters. And that's one of the reasons why we also started this project, because we thought, okay, well, everyone wants arenosine A. We've heard so much about arenosine A, we're kind of curious about it. So we started tugging on some strings here and there, following some leads, 
and before we knew it, we were way too deep into this and we had to kind of complete the project. But very quickly, we realized, okay, this Arenacine A thing is not that easy. We can't just come out with an Arenacine A product like that. There has to be a lot of work, clearly. Now you've heard it too. But the interesting thing is, all of this research has focused on Arenacine A. And in all of this uh, kind of talk on the internet, and not as much on the heresinons and the heresines. And I think those actually are very interesting contents too and deserve just as much praise as Arenacine A. And I think, I hope that with this project, that now we've kind of actually put out an Arenacine A product. You can now take Arenacine A with full trust in the fact that you are actually consuming a good amount of Arenacine A. You can now see what that feels like for the, basically the first time ever, as far as we're aware. And you can kind of compare it with the fruiting bodies. And then the next stage of this project will be understanding the fruiting bodies better. What do the heresines feel like? What do the heresinones feel like? What does a combination of arenosines and heresinones feel like? So one really interesting thing we discovered is that arenosine A definitely is enhancing the synthesis of NGF, but the heresinones are actually modifying how NGF works. So the heresinones seem to make the TRKA receptors more sensitive or there's some sort of pathway going on there. And if you really think about that, it's kind of disingenuous than to just go, okay, arenosine A, that's, that's all we need. No, what we probably need is arenosine A in the context of heresinone. And if you think of it in a natural context, if you harvest the mushroom and you're getting some of that mycelium, pulling that with the fruiting body or harvesting it at a specific stage, maybe you are getting a little bit of arenosine in there. And it's not enough maybe to have an effect just on its own, but in the context of arisonans, you have this entourage type of effect. And that entourage effect is then having a much greater effect. So I think what we're going to find is that what we really want to optimize is to make the best fruiting body as possible, the best mycelium as possible, and then combining them. Because it seems that yep. the combination is the most interesting. And you can kind of try that out now already. You can take like our um, lion's mane mycelium with the one-to-one -one lion's mane if you just yeah. want to go for a non-extract kind of thing, non-extracted fruiting body, non-extracted mycelium, or for the time being you can already go with non-extracted mycelium because that's all we have at the moment and by the way is, is good enough with the high amount of arenosine. And then you can stack it with the lion's mane eight-to-one extract, which I hope at a certain point we will then with the work Jay is doing and the rest of the lab and what's on that whiteboard there, we will be able to actually look at those compounds and see what is changing from the one-to-one lion's mane to the eight-to-one lion's mane. Because for years now, subjectively, or yeah, subjectively, we've taken these um, extracts and we've noticed differences in effects between the one-to-one -one and the eight-to-one, even if and this is not entirely how extracts work, but basically an eight to one means you would start with eight kilograms of lion's mane and you would end up with one kilogram of extract. That's kind of how it works, but it's not linear. Like we were talking about a little bit earlier, you lose a lot of stuff when you extract. So you end up concentrating certain things and losing other things. And when we've compared lion's mane one-to-one at eight times the dosage of the lion's mane eight-to-one and kind of put them head-to-head, -head, like 
taking um, four grams of the one-to-one -one versus 500 milligrams of the uh, eight-to-one, they're not comparable in effects. There's something else going on there. So we're extracting some different contents. So hopefully with this kind of research, we will be able to figure out what those differences are and how we can optimize for the most, maybe we can make different types of extracts, extracts focused on your resonance or hair scenes and then start combining them to have like bespoke lion's mane extracts guided by science. Yeah, um, so one of the things we always do whenever we get a new method or a new standard available to us is we go back and measure a bunch of other stuff. So when we measure you know, our eight to one and our one to one for compounds like Harrisine A and see if they're in there, they're in there. The product is not standardized to that, but they've been there all along. So this partially explains why people like this particular product versus that particular product. Because they both might be 25% you know, beta-glucans or 50% one and 25% the other. But just because the two things that are standardized to are either the same or distinct by some specific value doesn't mean the materials are the same. And I did a little video about ratio extracts and standardized extracts that kind of addresses some of this um, that'll be posted shortly or might be posted already depending upon when this is posted. But um, those heresines that are present in some of our products but not in others, like the eight to one and the one to one, for example, might explain why people like this version of the product and that version. Um, because we still have, this is all just the complexity of the material. We haven't talked about the complexity of how people interact with the material, right? People have different isozymes and different genetics and then uh, different dosing conditions. Like the, there's a whole swath of variables that we haven't even touched because we're just focusing on what is it, how much is it, rather than what does it do to you if you're this person or that person or have this health condition or are healthy this way or a little bit portly gentlemen like myself or whatever. So um, there's a lot of variables we still got to address. And I think at this point too, if you're listening to this, you might think, well, but you've had the one-to-one -one and the eight-to-one lines made fruit and body extracts. Why didn't you start there? And I think this kind of illustrates it. We're not entirely sure what exactly we want in those fruiting bodies. There's a much larger class, although we had a very distinct target in the mycelium. A lot of research is focusing on arenosine A, a lot of the talk on the internet is focused on arenosine A. So having just one goal and being able to hone in on that singular goal, which turned out to be really difficult, um, but at least we had something to target. And now that we've built up experience with that, and also we didn't really want to just release a mycelium product. If we were going to release a mycelium product, we wanted the most interesting compound in there, or what people think yep. is the most interesting compound. And properly measured. Which is a yep. A. But now that has kind of laid the groundwork. We have now have the equipment and the expertise in-house to now tackle the fruiting bodies, which for me, I'm actually the most excited about the fruiting bodies because I like growing the fruiting bodies. I like how they look. I like the effects of the fruiting bodies. I gravitate a little bit more to the fruiting bodies now that I've actually tried both of them. They stack nicely together, but I'm definitely more of a camp fruiting body rather than camp mycelium. And I hope we're going to have a little bit of competition there on Reddit yeah. where we'll have camp mycelium <laughs> and camp fruiting. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, hit the beehive a little bit. Um, so one thing that I'm personally worried about is it was, it was possible to grow mycelium in such a way that this can be maximized. It may not be the case that you can grow fruiting body that will make the maximum amount of some of these other molecules that we care about. Yeah. It might just not be possible, right? No matter how many times you grow an oak tree, 
you can't make it grow only acorns and no leaves, right? This is never going to happen. So if you want acorns, you, you're out of luck, right? You or you're going to have to really That's what I'm worried about. the Omnian Labs operation. But I do think you yeah, like have a really good doesn't. point there, too, because if you look at what we're growing mycelium in, it is isolated nutrients. Like we're using 100% control. We're using like peptones and proteins. Give away our secret formula. <laughs> <laughs> but we're yeah. using very isolated things. And I think even right. there, Jay was telling me an interesting story one time because you're very much into the, the aquarium scene and you were telling me yep. about saltwater aquariums and how important the salt is. And I never realized like that that is something you need to be worried about. Like you can't just go to the supermarket and grab some kosher salt and put that in your tank because all your fish are gonna die. And you were telling me one time there was some sort of minor impurity and <laughs> killed all your fish, right? Yeah, I lost about a, a year of growth, and this is actually well documented on the internet because you know I'm, I'm me and I document things. Um, that the salt that the manufacturer was providing to me was contaminated, and they didn't know it. I didn't know it until things started dying. Enough people had this problem, came together on the internet, and said, "Does anyone having this problem?" And everyone's like, "Yeah, me too." And back and forth, back and forth, people are like, "Wait, we're all using the same salt." Long story short, it ended up being the manufacturer open the manufacturer of the salt opened up a new manufacturing facility in Turkey didn't do their due diligence on the production side, and it was contaminated in some way that I have personally done ICP testing on my salt, so I know exactly what's in there in terms of the minerals, and it was not one of those things, but it's a brown contaminant. It shows up. I actually still have the sample at my house, um, and it just you don't know where it comes from, and that is supposedly pharmaceutical grade, the best salt you can possibly buy for the industry, and that, that stuff just happens. And the reason I bring that up is that we're talking about raw material as in the finished raw material, the mycelium, but it is also what goes into growing the mycelium and what goes into growing mm, the right. food body. So right. the sugar that's going in there, you assume right. it's Is the glucose contaminated when you put it in? Yeah. And yeah. not necessarily right, right. that that's going to have a negative effect on, on the end product. Like the, these contaminations are minor. It's just a, a little bit of a, a different mineral composition. But that slightly different mineral composition, while not having a very different effect on us, could affect things that are very sensitive, like saltwater fish or mycelium. So that changes things. But then it gets way more complex when we think about what we're growing fruiting bodies on, because we're not growing fruiting bodies on pharmaceutical grade pure things. We are growing them on wood and we're growing them on soy hulls and things like Which that. Ultimately natural came from products. the earth. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And in those natural, natural products all the natural variation for good or for bad, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And for example, maybe some of the precursors to these hericinones are actually existing in the wood. So depending on what you're growing the fruiting bodies on, maybe that's affecting how certain biosynthetic pathways work inside of the mushroom. So if you're using oak or beech or pinewood, although I don't think that would work, but you can use various different types of hardwoods to grow these mushrooms on. And 
we can get a little bit fancy here using a wine term, but terroir, if you look at different parts of the world, <laughs> exactly, but if you look at different parts of the world, there's going to be different compositions in what's in that wood. If it was growing in a yep. much colder or a much hotter climate, maybe there's more yep. sugars or less sugars and the fruiting bodies are going to react to that. So to standardize a fruiting body, body growing regimen to isolate certain compounds in the same way we're doing with the mycelium is much harder because we can't control it as precisely as we can with a liquid culture bioreactor. Right. This is way more artisanal in a sense where we have to select the best raw materials to grow these mushrooms on and different types of um, growth conditions. And this is something in the last podcast, we introduced the Mushroom Kingdom. And in the Mushroom Kingdom, these are the kind of experiments we can do. We can say, okay, yes. let's start and keep it simple. We just want oak wood, but we'll use oak wood from the west of the US and we'll use oak wood from the east of the US and see, are there any differences with the same exact cultivar, the same strain that's being cloned from the same Petri dish everything the same the only thing that's different is the type of wood or the type of additive that's in there for example a really um, common way to grow these mushrooms is you use oak wood and you use spent soy hull so just the the covering of soybeans and you call that master's mix if you go and look that up on google and you type in master's mix you'll see that a lot of home growers and professional growers are growing on this stuff. And when I was growing my own fruiting bodies, I had little compressed pellets of oak wood. I don't know where the oak wood was coming from, but it was oak wood or the and soil holes yeah, compressed together. And then I was putting tap water in it. And that's interesting too, because in tap water, you have different minerals. There's so much stuff in tap water. Yeah. And bacteria. And bacteria. Yeah. And of course, yeah. you are sterilizing it, but those bacteria are going to yeah. leave behind hulls of themselves, the which might have. Yep. Yeah. Um, so it gets quite complex to grow these fruiting bodies, but those are experiments we have the, the capability to run now in the uh, mushroom kingdom. And another thing is, different cultivars produce different types of compounds. So you see this in various different industries. For example, if you look at tea or coffee, the, you can have coffea arabica, but different cultivars of it. And those produce different oh, yeah. flavors. Same thing with tea. And of course, a very um, famous example is hemp. We'll just call it hemp. We'll not get into the more psychoactive stuff. Um, but if you look at all of the growing and research and breeding that's going on there, you can get different terpenes that have different smells and you can have different compounds yeah, there that's a great just example. based on the right. cultivar. Uh, and and right. that's something we're doing. So we have 21 different cultivars and actually species. So Heritia marinaceus is not the only, uh, well, it, it's the only lion's mane, but there are closely related species. like. Heritium americanum. I think I said that correctly now, Matt, if you're listening. <laughs> One of our <laughs> colleagues was giving me shit for this uh, <laughs> a little while ago. Oh, uh, I think yeah. it is americanum. Uh, we have things like Heritium coralloides growing, uh, Heritium adiatus, and some other very interesting, just completely different species, which should produce some of those compounds. 
And a lot of this research is on Heritium arenaceus, and there might be different types of heresinones, there might be different types of heresines, there might be completely different classes of compounds within some of these other Heritium species, which are beneficial. Undiscovered. Um, so we can explore that and, and then say, okay, well, we want a little bit of Heritium arenaceus, and we want a little bit of Heritium americanum, and we want that blended with a little bit of Heritium abiatus. Yeah. And maybe that's too complex, but maybe that complexity is justifiable in the effects, in the chemical profile we're seeing. And maybe then we look at what do myceliums of these different species look like too, because those are going to be different. So there's just so much to explore, and I think there is a big detriment to us being in the infancy of this because there is not a lot of readily available research. But one of the benefits is that we can be at the forefront of innovation. And I think with this Arenacine A project, we've proven that we really are at the forefront because you can do a lot of scientific research and you can read papers all day long. But at the end of the day, people actually need to be able to take these things too in medical contexts, in supplemental contexts. And I think we are doing some very important work to make that possible so we can actually translate what we're reading in research to real world results. Yeah, that's really well said. I think the hemp example uh, really drives it home because everyone knows there's different types of hemp and they make different things. They smell different, they look different, they taste different, they keep for different amounts of time. Uh, in the beer brewing world, um, hops have the same problem, right? Exactly. In the same family, I think it is. Um, so people specifically breed hops for different properties. Maybe they make more alpha acids or more beta acids or these are more disease resistant. Um, so we know that by crossbreeding, I mean, humans know when you crossbreed plants, you get different properties. But our question here is, can we do the same thing with the mycelium in the fruiting body? And can we get it to make the molecules that we actually care about at concentrations that are actually meaningful to us in an economically feasible way so we can generate a product that everyone can actually take and afford and not just some random pharmaceutical that's going to be so expensive no one ever buys it and isn't, isn't useful. Yeah. It makes the process very complex, but that also <laughs> makes it really exciting that we can finally introduce this lion's mane mycelium to all of you. And we would love to hear what your experience has been with it on Reddit um, and the YouTube comments as well. If you've just come across this video or if you're learning new things about mushrooms all the time, um, definitely follow us on Reddit. Our subreddit is r slash and subscribe to our channel because we have more mushroom research to share and there will be more mushroom products to share every day every single day there's something new being explored jay is also going to be doing regular shorter format videos those are coming soon so be sure that you're subscribed to our youtube channel so that you can catch all of those videos and learn even more about the really specific nitty-gritty science from jay and Jay, you were yeah, saying if you like this ones, stuff, <laughs> yeah, based on ratio. Uh, if you like this stuff, yeah, it's going to be ratio extracts. So we have lots of different types of videos. Some of them are about the industry, um, with like how labels are made or how the industry works or things you should watch out for as a consumer. Here's some trends that we see that are disheartening to us because there's some bad actors, as every industry has. Um, but then also chemistry videos too, right? If you like this stuff, like how do they actually calibrate 
an instrument or a method or how do they quantify, how do they really know it's 0.5%, right? If you really want to see me do math on a spreadsheet and draw pictures, those are the videos for you. And I'm also on Reddit too under u slash Omniant Labs in our subreddit and around. So uh, I can be contacted there as well if you have questions you guys want to just talk about. It's always fun to talk science. You know, I would definitely recommend looking at Jay's videos. I'm watching them too, and I'm learning a lot from them too, because I know a oh, lot nice. about the effects and stuff like that, but I'm not as knowledgeable about the science, and I always rely on Jay for that knowledge, and now it's super convenient, because I can always go back and get a little bit of the science knowledge from Jay, and it's just always there. And to be honest, like some of these videos you might have to watch a few times to really understand what's going on. Uh, because there's try to keep them understandable. Yeah. <laughs> just like yeah. maybe with this is the understandable here. version for the record. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is the simple version. So yeah. hopefully it's not too bad. Awesome, awesome. Thanks for joining us. Cool. As yeah, always, really, yeah. really exciting. To All right, guys. What you're doing, and we'll awesome. see you soon. Yeah. Hey, All right. Have a good one. See you. Bye. 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 Wow. That was amazing to talk with Jay Absolutely. to get such an in-depth understanding of what mycelium is and how it's being made, what we're doing to actually isolate that arenosine A to get our final product, which is the lion's mane mycelium, and just learn more about all of the steps that go into standardizing a product, making sure that it's going to have the effects that we're looking for, making sure that we can actually give you a product that has this quality and this level of arenosine A, and just learning more about science every single time that we talk with Jay. And maybe for you too, since you're trying this product out live on camera, maybe after talking to Jay, you even have a little bit more appreciation for what you just took. What you took is really innovative. It is the first time something has been put out on the market that actually has a real arenosine A standardization. And as we talked about earlier in the podcast, when we've looked at some other products and uh, mycelium on grain products, the amount of arenosine A in there is very low and it is orders of magnitude higher in this product. And this is still the beginning. Now we can start looking at extracts and, and those extracts are going to open up new doors because what happens when we took something like 4% arenosine A or uh, even higher, or maybe that's not even interesting, but there's a lot to explore here. And I am definitely humbled that we can actually come out with this product now. It's been such a long time. There's definitely been parts during this journey where I've really thought, okay, this isn't gonna happen because we would get somewhere and then there would be a roadblock. Like we, as Jay said, the first time we got enough um, reference standard from our extraction work it was a few milligrams it was like three or five milligrams or so and you use up a little bit of this reference standard every time you test a product so we were just doing some testing of stuff our own arenosine or our own lion's mane fruiting body we found actually very small amounts of arenosine a in there but not a whole lot and then we looked at a few different people's um, lion's mane mycelium products most of which were lion's mane mycelium on grain and we also didn't see a whole lot of um, uh, arenosine a in there so but then our reference standard was finished so that initial kind of um, 
exploratory research trying to figure out is there some arenosine A in fruiting bodies okay yeah that's true there really isn't that much arenosine A in fruiting bodies but is there arenosine A in mycelium on grain because if that's the case then we just go with mycelium on grain and we try and do it in a proper way but there is no arenosine A not a whole lot of arenosine A not enough arenosine A in mycelium on grain products so that wasn't an option so then you have to start exploring and then okay well you have to scale up these huge bioreactors that have a bunch of liquid in them that have biological material growing in there that's very sensitive but you also have to stress it out a little bit and so it's a lot of work and there's some very skilled people involved with this project jay uh, robert in the lab um, not to toot my own horn but I'm one of those people that's in there some of the partners we're working with we all came together and it was a huge collective effort and of course the owner of Nootropics Depot Paul without him none of this would be possible and he definitely is a big intellectual part of this and he's keeping all of us motivated and it was a big mission of his to come out with an arenosine A product so everything combined all of the people working on it all of the man hours all of the money and equipment and partnerships and research um, researchers that we've talked to and actually had on our payroll for periods of time all of that culminated now in this product and now you for the first time in my opinion get to actually experience what arenosine a feels like you've seen erica try it out now you've seen myself try it out now now it's time for you to try it out we would love to hear what your experience has been, and we would love to hear how the science main mycelium product is stacking with the other products that you might be taking on a daily basis. So if you would like to share your experience or ask some questions or just discuss what it's been like so far for you, definitely go and subscribe. Follow us on Reddit, that's r slash Nootropics Depot, and share your thoughts, share your experience. Um, tell us what dose you've been taking and what things you've noticed from the Lion's Mane Mycelium so far. I know this video is probably coming out really close to the release date and things can change depending on how long you've been taking the product. So don't be surprised if you start to notice different effects after maybe a week or two weeks of taking it, perhaps it combines really well with your current stack, or perhaps you might want to change things around. Um, just like the botanicals that we work with, our bodies are constantly changing and it's really useful to have a resource like Reddit there where you can learn from other people's experience and share your own. So definitely don't be shy. We really want to hear your feedback about this product, about what it's doing for you. And we'd love to know nice combinations that you've discovered as well. And this is going to lead us into the end segment of our podcast, which is talking about stacks that you can build with Lion's Mane Mycelium, because we love to talk about stacks. We love to put different recipes together for specific situations. And we also think that it's really important to maximize and optimize the benefits of a specific product by complementing it with others that can kind of elevate those benefits and work alongside of it. So let's start with a mushroom only stack because I think there are a lot of people out there who are really curious and discovering functional mushrooms for the first time. And I think based on our last podcast, the, the tiger's milk mushroom conversation we had, I wanna know, Emil, what your thoughts are about combining lion's mane mycelium with other mushroom products and what might work well and why that certain mushrooms can work well together 
for mood, for cognition, and for overall inflammation support. Yeah, I'll do a four mushroom blend for okay. the first one. And this mushroom blend is going to be most geared towards cognitive function, towards mood, memory, those kind of things. Think of this as the nootropic lion's mane mycelium stack. So for that, we will start with the lion's mane mycelium, of course, but then we'll combine it actually with just regular lion's mane fruiting body. And let's not go with an extract. Let's keep everything full spectrum because the lion's mane mycelium is not an extract. So let's then go with the lion's mane one-to-one. -one. When you use these together in considering that there's probably some hericinones and heresines in there as Jay was talking about on our call, those hericinones make NGF work better. And renosine A is enhancing the synthesis of NGF. So if you have that synthesis of NGF increasing and you have another compound present that is making NGF work more efficaciously, then those two together will stack nicely and have synergistic effects. And that's kind of something we just generally had in mind, that it would be a combination of lion's mane mycelium and lion's mane fruiting bodies, and those together are going to produce the best overall effects. So I think for the base of this stack, we will consider this the, myce the lion's mane stack, the, just the whole full spectrum lion's mane, both mycelium and fruiting body. We're gonna stack that with tiger milk mushroom. Tiger milk mushroom is further going to drive that NGF mechanism because tiger milk mushroom is acting as an NGF mimetic at the TRKA receptor. That's the receptor where NGF is acting and producing its beneficial effects. So combining NGF synthesis, NGF mimetic activity, and making NGF work better with the hericinones present in the fruiting bodies, all three of these together are going to produce the most pronounced NGF type of effect that we can imagine. And then I want to stack that together with Poria mushroom. And one of the reasons I want to stack it together with Poria mushroom is because Poria mushroom just really doesn't get um, as much love as it should, I think. Recently, there was a post on Reddit where someone was saying, yeah, Poria is one of the more interesting mushrooms. And I agree. Poria is probably the, the least well-researched, the least hyped mushroom around. It was really interesting. It's a sclerotion similar to tiger milk mushroom. And we don't really know what it's doing. There's some triterpenes in there. There might be some neuroplasticity effects going on. And if you look in traditional Chinese medicine, you see poria mushroom being used often, and especially in formulations that are geared towards nootropic effects, toward mood boosting effects. For example, it's oftentimes combined with polygala. So I think with that in mind and some of the interesting effects it has, combining that poria mushroom with tiger milk mushroom with lion's mane and with the lion's mane mycelium all non-extract so you're just getting the full mushroom potential i think it's very interesting it would make for a really interesting tropic stack now if we're going to switch gears to more mushroom stacks and mushroom stacks that are more geared towards the physical side of the spectrum towards pain and inflammation then it, it's pretty easy. You can probably already guess what mushroom you're gonna put in there because this is one of your favorites for this purpose, and that is? Red reishi. 
Yeah, and specifically yes. the altered potent red reishi that has a very nice physically relaxing effect. It has a calming effect, but above all, the ganoderic acids have a really good effect on the inflammation. So that lion's mane mycelium together with that ultra potent red reishi extract is really going to help dial in those inflammation effects. Also interesting is that the triterpenes in red reishi also act as kind of neuroplasticity enhancing compounds. So while this is a stack more focused on overall inflammation and pain levels, I think you're also going to see very interesting nootropic synergy between lion's mane mycelium and the ultrapotent red reishi. Another mushroom that you could then potentially stack together with it would be something like chaga. Chaga has some good uh, oxidation regulating effects. It also has some good effects on inflammation. And I think white jelly is an interesting one. White jelly has good oxidation regulating and inflammation regulating effects. It's good for the skin, but it's also good for pain and inflammation and, and, and that kind of area. So I think another four mushroom stack then would be lion's mane mycelium, um, the ultrapotent red reishi, chaga, and white jelly. And that would just be general pain, inflammation, and the bonus of skin health and some nootropic effects. I think that's a very interesting stack. Awesome. Uh, and then... Let's move into something yeah. that highlights the mood and the, the less easy to describe benefits of the lion's mane mycelium because this effect that you're talking about this slightly underwater effect this is something that i recognize in a couple of other supplements but i think you could make it even more pronounced and i would be very curious to try this on a relaxing day off of work on a day where i might be spending some time um, doing a reflective or or a, a chill activity maybe by myself or just around the house I'm thinking of the perfect like watching the clouds go by type of stack for relaxation, not for focus, not for work, but just for the pleasure of it. And starting with lion's mane mycelium, I would want to add cognance. And that's because I think cognance has this similar kind of like overarching mood boost that isn't so stimulating. It doesn't feel like it's changing my mood, like there's something from the, the outside that's coming in and you know flipping a switch, it's more that things just start to become a little bit more real, things start to become a little bit more relaxed, and I can follow my creativity a little bit easier when I'm taking Cognance. And I like that feeling that I'm getting. It's a bit similar with a lion's mane mycelium. So lion's mane mycelium, Cognance. I would want to add something on here which is also going to be a little bit energizing and I find lately that the coriander extract, the supercritical coriander, can be very energizing and... That's interesting because normally it's very relaxing. For me yes. at least it's very relaxing so it's yes. interesting you're having that response. Well I've been taking it in the afternoon and in the mm -hmm. evening and I find when I do that it's a little bit more difficult to fall asleep. I find that my mm -hmm. mind is relaxed but active and the combination of the coriander with the cognance and with the lion's mane I think could be a really nice blend. It could actually ease a little bit of that energizing effect of the coriander. I still think the coriander is physically relaxing, but mentally it seems to be doing something a bit different for me now compared to six months ago. 
So this is an interesting phenomenon. And I actually wasn't totally aware you were having this effect, um, but we call this paradoxical stimulation. So sometimes GABAergics can actually be a little bit stimulating. And it's probably because you've been experiencing a little bit more stress, your mind is overactive and you turn off that kind of overactive part of your brain. And then you actually, because you're so relaxed, you have more mental bandwidth. You yes. start thinking a little bit more creatively and things like that. So that's, that's very interesting. Yes. So perhaps if we go a little bit away from the science and just talk about it in more of everyday life terms, this would be like the inspiration stack. <laughs> I imagine it could be useful if you're doing something creative or maybe working in your garden or you know, cooking a nice meal for yourself or your family um, on a day off to really just experience that mindfulness, that kind of uh, present feeling in your body, and also to just let the mind wander where it wants to go. Because I think the lion's mane mycelium is really helping to just sort of open up some windows. And um, I think that the Cognance does a really good job of this physically and mentally. And then coriander kind of takes things up a notch and makes things a little bit more saturated as well. So those three, I think, would play really nicely together, but I have no idea what the actual result would be. So I'm very curious to try this myself when one of those uh, free days comes along soon. And I'll kind of do a riff off of your stack because I like the combination of lion's mane mycelium and then the cognans. And I, the reason why I like it is because that kind of enhances the microdose effect a little bit more. So how do we lay into that a little bit more? And I think one of the interesting components there would then be saffron. They add oh, in yeah. a bit of saffron that also produces a relaxing but more serotonergic relaxing effect, which goes well with the effects of cognans and also seems to go well with the effects of lion's mane mycelium. Uh, I have actually stacked a little bit of a serotonergic thing together with uh, saffron specifically with lion's mane mycelium. I noticed a little bit of a different effect there too. Again, I'm not a very strong responder to lion's mane mycelium. So for you, that might be a much more different effect. And then I would also add in the isoliquitogenin because I'm really liking the isoliquitogenin actually together with the lion's mane mycelium. And it is this relaxed but stimulated feeling that I think would go very well with saffron, cognance, and then lion's mane mycelium altogether would be my kind of take on a microdose stack. Um, yeah. Super and fun. with that in mind, actually, I said I would check in with you a little bit later. And now that we've yes. had the call with Jay and some more time has elapsed, mm -hmm. are you still enjoying the effects of the lion's mane mycelium? Has anything changed? Yes, I'm definitely still enjoying the effects. I feel that I'm more mentally dialed in. I don't feel quite as mentally relaxed or let's say floating like I did earlier, but I feel sharp. I feel like the initial kind of glow of the, the lion's mane mycelium has subsided a little bit. And now I am kind of, I'm leaning more towards the laser focus than I am towards okay. the floating. And physically, I feel the same. I still feel quite relaxed. But mentally, I think I'm starting to notice the cognitive benefits more acutely. And this is something that is quite difficult to put into words for anyone who is doing this kind of bioassaying on a regular basis. It can be such a subtle difference, but now I find that the, the sort of direction that I want to take the conversation in 
it's already there. All I need to do is just arrive. Whereas earlier, I felt like I could experience and sense what was happening around me and then in the moment make sentences and form meaning as to how I was experiencing it. So now I feel that there's more momentum and that's something I can't say I've experienced with other mushroom products. Interesting. This one has a little bit more of a forward motion like pushing than I've experienced with others. Okay, so overall I think acutely for the last two or two and a half hours or so, lion's mane mycelium is a good fit for you. Um, I definitely want to keep taking it. Yeah, so we'll definitely get you some. You can start trying it out a little bit longer term. Um, And I think with that in mind and with the longer term thing in mind, there's one last stack we will conclude this episode with, and that is a neuroplasticity stack. So how can we hit all of these different neuroplasticity mechanisms from lots of different angles? And this is going to be a a much larger stack. So we'll start with lion's mane mycelium. We're gonna stack it with the lion's mane eight to one now to kind of drive a little bit more of that enhancement of NGF. We're then going to stack it with Alcar. Alcar makes us acetyl-L-carnitine. That makes us more sensitive to the effects of NGF. We're gonna stack that with taiga milk mushroom. That's then going to act as a mimetic at the TRKA receptor. So we have a lot of NGF TRKA modulating effects going on there. Then we're going to focus a little bit more on the BDNF side. So for BDNF, we will take 7-8-DHF. 7-8-DHF is going to act as a mimetic at the receptor that BDNF, which by the way is brain-derived neurotrophic factor axon, which is TRKB. Again, NGF works on TRKA, BDNF works on TRKB. So we are activating both now with lion's mane, with taiga milk, with alcar, um, and now hitting the BDNF side with 7-8-DHF. And then I found a really interesting study recently that showed that Andrographis paniculata upregulates TRKB uh, levels. So I think adding that in there will also kind of work well with the pain modulating effects, which is not necessarily what we're going for. We're going more for long-term effects here, but I think that's an, an interesting one for targeting the TRKB system. And then to round it off, I would like to add in cyanidin-3-glucoside because cyanidin-3-glucoside, because of the mitochondrial biogenesis effect it has, is important for stimulating neurogenesis, neuroplasticity too. And both TRKB and TRKA activation do, to a certain degree, uh, rely on PGC1-alpha activation as well to drive that mitochondrial biogenesis. And that's how cyanidin-3-glucoside drives mitochondrial biogenesis and aids in the the process of neuroplasticity. All of those together would be my ultimate neuroplasticity long-term. Like if you really want to drive that neuroplasticity for mood and memory, I think that's a great stack for the long-term. Very cool. So that's a quite a big stack, that's very a comprehensive, big one. That's a big one. but we will put all of this information, all the stacks that we've suggested and links to the products in the description box below. So definitely check that out if you're curious to try these stacks yourself. And we definitely want to hear what your experience is with them. That brings us to the end of the podcast. Wow, we've gone really <laughs> in depth with talking about Lion's Mane Mycelium, talking about this new product that we've come out with, as well as our other new product this month, Isoliquidogenin. And we're just so excited and glad that 
we get to talk with you about these nootropics uh, in video form and on Reddit and in the YouTube comments because it's really fun to just hear your feedback and to answer your questions and to discuss with you exactly what you're experiencing and what you're looking for in your daily supplement stacks because like you, we take supplements every single day and we take our health really seriously, but we also really want to enjoy our life. And that's the main goal that we have when it comes to taking supplements is to optimize our health, is to be able to focus when we need to, and then to be able to relax when we want to and when we have the time. And I think that's one part of doing this podcast that's really fun is it helps us open our minds and ask different questions that we wouldn't on a regular basis because we get to talk really in depth about these products with you. Mm -hmm. So thank you for continuing to listen and watch and share the podcast with your friends. And we are really excited to come back next month with another in-depth, exciting conversation about nootropics and botanicals. And with that, we would just ask that you share this podcast with your friends, uh, give us a thumbs up, Definitely interact with us on Reddit to follow us at r slash Depot and stick around until next month when there's going to be a very new and very fun episode of the In Search of Insight podcast ready for you. So we'll see you next month. Thank you. Bye. See ya. Bye.